Hello, everybody, and welcome. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if you're new here and wondering what this whole thing is about, well, every week I awake to find my head surgically grafted onto the body of another friend or cinephile, not replacing their head just next to it a little bit, awkwardly perched on their shoulder. Together, we're given a note with a theme, sometimes cryptic, sometimes straightforward, and we have to each pick a movie that fits that theme and then discuss them. Who is doing this to me? Why are they doing this to me? I still don't know. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. Okay, here we are. And ladies, gents, I am excited to say we have our first three-peat guest today. We are back here with Jared Jordan to discuss a couple of movies I think he's going to have quite an interest in. Jared, how's it going? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Real excited about uh, this this uh, this podcast. I mean, I've been excited about the other ones, but this one's this one's a, a real exciting one. Yeah, this one, we, we kind of decided on this early on, and th this is very much tailor-made to your interests. We're keeping our tradition of recording on a Wednesday, on a comic book day. Yep, yep. It is indeed Wednesday, best day of the week for, for those in the know. It is a uh, best day, even even if it's raining. I uh, had a nice, enjoyable walk, and it was a light spritzing of rain, but after, you know, an hour and a half walking, you you, you just end up being soaked. <laughs> oh, man. You got you go out of your way for your, your books. Every time you, you're on, we you, we always get into comic books a little bit. And it always makes me just really want to get back into it. I, I, I really want to go out and pick up some trades or even go back and just reread the stuff that's in my collection. And it, that is good today because today, well, we're going to be talking about a couple of comic book movies. But before we get to that, I guess we should open up the theme and go through the, you know, go through the motions of this, this little constructed opening here. So our theme today is The Beast Within. I won't keep everybody in, in suspense. We have picked our movies. So we're just going to take a really quick break and we'll be back to talk about the first of them. Look at you. Off to college. You'd be a great scientist. Like your father. There's something inside you so special. Someday you're going to share it with the whole world. Let's hit the gamma radiation. Countdown started. Nanomeds released. So our first movie today, we're going to go with my pick first for movies that are The Beast Inside. 
that are also comic book movies, as it turns out, is uh, Hulk, the 2003 Ang Lee version, the not very well-regarded version, although actually both of them aren't very well-regarded. Uh, yeah, this one does get the hate, though, I feel, between this and, and I assume you're talking about The Incredible Hulk as the other one. The, uh, yeah, the Incredible Hulk uh, just kind of got forgotten, like not forgotten, but ignored. This one got a lot of hate. This one was a lot like it, it was more in people's minds, but, but I, I feel that's also because this was like the f- what fourth big Marvel movie. Well, Spider-Man had come out the year earlier, right? So I guess X-Men and X-Men. We had, we had Spider-Man, X-Men. I'm, I don't remember if X-2 was out yet. Um, Daredevil was out, though. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Just talk about one. <laughs> talk about a movie that's just kind of been forgotten. Like, I, I was reminded the other day that Elektra exists as a movie. Oh, that's, like, that's oh, a movie to forget. <laughs> I, Because I, I, I saw Daredevil... And I, I wasn't a huge fan. Did you I didn't... see it on Valentine's Day? Because it was released on Valentine's Day. Oh, no. You know what it was? Was I watched it? I mean, okay, we're past any statute of limitations. I'm not, they're not going to fire me again. I worked at Suncoast at the time, and somebody returned it on VHS and said that it didn't work. And we, I mean, what are we going to do? We just did an exchange for them for the same title. But we had it in our back room to go back. And on my lunch breaks, we had a little TV VCR combo in the back. I would just sit in my lunch ba- breaks and watch Daredevil. So I, I watched it over like three days, and I I, I enjoyed it, but it, it wasn't. I, I think I think Daredevil gets a lot of flack for not the best reasons. <laughs> I don't know. I I actually enjoyed the Daredevil movie, but we're not here to talk about Daredevil. No, no, we're here to talk about Hulk. So everyone knows the basic story. Mild-mannered scientist Bruce Banner suffers a laboratory accident that exposes him to gamma radiation, which then causes him to turn into an uncontrollable green monster whenever he gets angry. The movie keeps most of the basics from the comics, but takes a few liberties with the details, most notably merging Bruce's abusive father with a pair of villains, the Absorbing Man and Zax. I I, I wouldn't have... I, I guess you could say they... Character was Zach, Zach, Zach. I don't know. It's there's a lot of Z's and X's and and, and Zach. He's yeah. an electrical beast. I never I never thought of him as Zach. I thought he was just more the absorbing man because the absorbing that's, man. That's so what I thought when stuff. I first watched it. But then I was I was looking up research on this, and a lot of people said that it took elements from Zach's. Most notably in the the final part where the absorbing man or Nick Nolte um, bites into the electrical cable. And becomes electricity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but Zax is an elect like he has no body. He is an alien. Like it's not a person who turned into an electrical being. He just shows up that way. Okay. While absorbing man, I've literally seen, you know, he he can do that. He can grab electricity and just turn into electricity. I, I, yeah, like I, it just never. Never struck. I mean, it didn't strike me as the best absorbing man. I really like Crusher Krill, um, the, the 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 original comic book absorbing man. Him and Titania are the best relationship in Marvel comics. If you want to see like the best, you know, two supervillains get along that are just like a, a great couple, it's them. Even the the one time like there's a breakup between them, it's retcon later that they only broke up to to create an illusion so that the other could break the other out of jail. It's like they're, they're, they're the, the, the perfect couple. If 
you're looking for super villains. No, not the abuse of David Banner we got. You, yeah, well, we'll we'll get into all that. The film was almost instantly reviled upon its release in 2003, getting mostly negative reviews, though a few critics did react positively to Ang Lee's attempts at deconstructing superhero movies, which maybe didn't work well with the audience or the general audience. It's a genre that was only just coming into its own in 2003. I didn't see this in theaters when it came out. I like I let the very bad word of mouth keep me away from it. Did you see this in theaters as like comic fan or did you wait? Oh yeah, I saw this in theaters. Okay, and what did you think? What were, what were your thoughts? I'll let you go first here. I enjoyed the movie. One of the, the biggest things I really enjoyed about this movie is the multi-paneling that Ang Lee does. Like it, it works super well in the montage scenes. Other scenes, it kind of pulls away. But he does this bit where, you know, you he does these cuts where you get a screen within the screen, you know, small screens or, or merging over. Uh, like there's times where you see him looking at something and then you actually see what that something is like totally, you know, giving you that Kuslav effect there where, where he's impassive, but you're getting your own emotion, like reading off of the things there when he's you know doing his science stuff. Uh, it, it just, it made it feel like a comic book that way. Oh, exactly. That's one of the things that I think works best about this. And I, I, I want to th- say that probably everybody can agree this is the most successful part of the movie is how much how much he translates the actual feel of a comic book there are moments when he pulls back and he's going from one scene to another and you see it slide past another bunch of scenes that are happening at the same time but they're comic book panels basically yeah there's there's one bit of hulk jumping and you actually see him jumping from like one like from one panel into the other and it's really cool and it and it really does yeah it makes it feel like a comic but he doesn't even do that for just the big action scenes. He 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 does tone it down for some of the more dramatic scenes, but all of the transitions, it'll be, yeah, like you were saying, split screen or like triple screens or there will be boxes within it. There's one there's one moment where in like 30 seconds he's transitions like six different scenes. <laughs> yeah, he does it, he does do it a lot. He gets through a lot of visual information this way. Because then characters will move in and out of scenes by the background behind them will change. And it'll like, like somebody will be in a car or even a dialogue scene. You'll see the two people are kind of superimposed each other over each other. Like they're two comic book panels. Like it's very expressionistic. It is not like, it is not a normal realistic editing style, but I think it's super cool. I love it every time he does it. I know, I I know I remember hearing people complain about it, but it's something that, like I, I wish I saw in more comic book movies. This effect in um, three hundred, I feel, are the two movies that really put you in, you know, panels. Uh, three hundred did it differently, where they sped up in between and then would slow down to show, oh, here's a panel shot. A speed up in between. Here's your next panel shot. Speed up in between. Here's your next panel shot. You know, like both both of those two things, like, really make it feel like a comic. That's another movie that I think its reputation has dropped off considerably, but I still think is a good movie. I enjoy that, 300. So I I didn't see this until it came out on home video, and immediately I kind of kicked myself for listening to people because I would love to see this movie on a big screen. And the, the one thing that was hard about it at, at, on a big screen 
since they do have those panels, you, you find yourself like all over the place, like looking around, trying to see what's going on. It's it's almost like the nice thing about watching it in the home video is you can see it all at once. You know, it's all right there. Okay, I don't have to dart as much, you know, back and forth. It's but but on the big screen, you're like, you know, one 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 small little panel is is still 60 inches. It's still a, a full size TV. Uh, you know, it's it's almost Back to the Future. You got you got all these TVs going on. You know, uh, it, it's it's crazy. Oh, I I guess I can see that. Uh, I know that once I saw this on video, I was blown away because I couldn't. I kind of couldn't figure out why everybody was telling me it was such a bad movie, and I loved it immediately. I've seen the movie. This is maybe my fourth time watching it, so it's not a movie I love and rewatch all the time. Since seventeen years, I've seen it four times, but <laughs> I'm always like. I'm always watching it thinking like, man, what were, what were people expecting? Amber reminded me of this. My, my line on the movie used to be that it was too much of a talky drama and not enough Hulk smash for the comic book fans that knew the Hulk. But it also had too much of a big green guy throwing around helicopters and tanks for the people that were going to see it for an Ang Lee character drama. So it, it kind of had a middle ground that didn't quite satisfy any of the audiences that normally would have been drawn to it. The story definitely could have been broken down into two movies. The The whole thing with, with David Banner and whatnot, that should have been a sequel movie. Nick Nolte should have been in the sequel the follow-up. You know, maybe have a little alluding to Bruce's past, but to, to go off and throw that revelation like in... You know, they're, they're telling so many stories because, you know, they build up Bruce as a scientist. They build up Bruce going through the transformation. They build up uh, Thunderbolt Ross. They build up Betty Ross. They build up Talbot's character. You know, you actually get, like, so many stories. You, you know, Bruce is actually one of the smaller characters, it seems. He's, he's the instrument of everyone else going on as, as their, their stories are being told. But there's, like, six stories that are... are constantly being you know swept swapped between and we we actually see the the characters in this yeah because this is a long movie this is a two hour and 18 minute movie at a time when when superhero movies were not that length now you know we get the avengers Avengers movies weren't that late yeah like nowadays avengers is like two and a half hours but at the time a two hour and 18 minute action movie is long and watching it i did think like okay this this could have been a bit shorter but then the question is, well, what do you cut out? Because I, I think most of the movie works. We also had I, like 40 minutes before we even saw the Hulk. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't mind that, but we'll get to that. But the character I think I would excise from this movie, I mean, that's interesting, the idea of making the the dad stuff part of a sequel. But that stuff worked for me in this movie. What didn't work for me as well is Talbot. And I guess he's he's kind of a, a necessary character. You need that, you know, the, the people who are going to try and take advantage. A lot of his story could have been a sequel. I think Talbot should have been in there, but more as just General Ross's go-to guy. Yeah, Here, well, he, he had his own... And, and Talbot is big in the comics. You know, he has his own methods. He takes over for Ross at certain times, you know. But, yeah, it, it was a, a whole other story. But as far as like actors in the movie goes, I think he did one of the best performances because like he knew he was in a comic book movie. It almost seems like a little over dramatized, but I, I thought he he fit Talbot like really well. 
Well, that yeah, not having any history with the character in the comics, I, mean, I, I couldn't tell you how well he inhabited that character. I will just say that in the movie, his character is purely functional. Like there, there isn't a lot to him. He is just there to clearly be a smarmy guy, a threat to Bruce, both romantically and for the project that they're working and on. And to be intense. Yeah, but he doesn't, even though he is the one that kind of like leads to the big final confrontation, his character doesn't have anything more to him than just, uh, you know, what a stock, it, it's a stock character. And then his character is dispatched so quickly and it's kind of a really cheesy moment because there's an explosion behind him and he gets kind of cut out like he gets a comic book border while the fire blazes behind him and he's in this really silly pose where he's screaming and flying towards the camera. It's kind of silly, but it's also just like it's so sudden. I get a laugh out of it. But yeah, his character yeah, he, he would have been a better sequel. Yeah, his character just bores me because what I what I like about this movie is that it is when you get down to it kind of about the emotional baggage that kids take from their parents because it's all about overbearing fathers you know general ross and betty my father also spliced my genes with bioluminescent fish <laughs> what what are you damn it I, dad <laughs> i heard you but i don't get what you're trying to say <laughs> he said we're taking away the the baggage from our parents <laughs> oh yeah yeah well i'm just saying that they're they're it, it's about two like driven, like overbearing fathers, right? Like Betty and, yeah. and General Ross, and then Bruce and David Banner. Sam Elliott and Jennifer Conley's like interactions together. Man, did they, they, they pulled off like they were great. They really were. I, I think so too. Sam Elliott is so, he's so laid back in everything that we know him from. And yet he is barely suppressed rage the entire movie he is so he's thunderbolt ross <laughs> yeah he's he's like he's so intense in this in a way that you i am not used to seeing sam elliott and i think the the dads are the best part of this movie i really love nick nolte even though he is kind of chewing up the scenery literally at one point yeah 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 okay <laughs> and <laughs> And a lot of his dialogue is unintelligible garbage, even when he's not mumbling it under his breath. Like, it can be hard to hear, but even when you hear it, the stuff he's saying is just like, well, this is gobbledygook. What are you talking about? But, I wonder, like, how much of that they just let Nick Nolte, you know, hey, is he saying stuff over there? Yeah, yeah, film that. Yeah, but he's he's so great in this. I I think he's amazing. And the scene that always, like, stuck with me after that first viewing was the scene at the end where they're both basically being held by the military, Bruce and David, and they're having a conversation. And Nick Nolte is really playing it to the hilt in that scene. And he just goes completely crazy. But he is so dynamic to watch. And poor Eric Bana. Eric Bana is a fine actor. He just can't keep up. And he just like does this like kind of community theater screaming and crying during this scene. And the camera's not focusing too much on him, but he looks just a little bit silly next to Nick Nolte, who is going as big as can be and kind of owning the screen. I, I felt Eric, like Eric Bana, he's not a bad actor, but there, there was there was 
some some definitely better actors in this movie. And his his anger almost like every time he's he's like getting angry and transforming into a Hulk, like I, I his anger just didn't hit me with that rage as much as I'm having problems breathing. He's a good actor, but he is kind of flattening the character out here. He's he's so locked locked up and withholding. Yeah. That he's not an interesting character to watch. He's he's kind of the least interesting character whenever he's on screen as Bruce Banner, which I don't know if it's if it's his fault or if it's what the movie was going for. But then even when he's the Hulk, like he's not doing the motion capture. Ang Lee did all the motion capture for the Hulk scenes. Right. <laughs> which I remember him talking about how much fun it was to just let that anger and rage out and completely destroy everything and just like do all these. He puts some character, like when he's walking with the the tank barrel and he's like slapping it like a bat in his hand. Yeah, that's you get some smiles at some of his his mocap he does. Well, let's talk about how the Hulk looks because it it kind of got I mean it got unfavorably compared (sighs) to Shrek at the time. Yeah, yeah. So so Hulk's look is definitely one of the problems in this movie, I feel. Like, the they, they need to tone down <laughs> the camera. <laughs> Literally, like, like, green is too bright. Uh, like, bring it bring it down. He, 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 he's almost glowing without the glow. Like Yeah, I think they explain that with the bioluminescence, right? Like, he's supposed yeah, to... Yeah, but still, it's, You're it's right. a little it, too much. It is very cartoony, which doesn't always work but i think as a cgi creation it's better than people gave it credit for especially in the face i mean the face is very primitive cgi compared to what they can do now but it's a very expressive face and the motion capture the face looks like him yeah Uh, it looks like uh eric banner for sure well it, it also it also conveys the emotions better than i think people gave it credit for like the CGI, like you can definitely tell it's CGI, but I think the biggest like reason you can tell it's CGI is that that color is not natural to look at. They should have made it more of a lizard green, so so that your your brain can comprehend it. Like no one expects to see anything that's a life form that looks like that. We have nothing in existence that has that type. Even fish, when they get bright green, aren't that type of green, you know. I think it looks fine. Actually, I can't imagine it looking much different, especially in the San Francisco scenes where it's bright daylight and we're seeing him that he kind of like fits the brightness of the rest of the scene. And I will say that like the problem with a lot of CGI that doesn't work well is it it moves too fluidly. Like I think this looks better than I, I did have that in his jumps. The jumps did feel kind of weird. Well, yeah, but I will say that in general, for most of the movie, the CGI for the for the Hulk is more convincing than the CGI from Spider Man when he's swinging around. Because that I haven't seen. I have, you're, you're talking Sam Raimi Spider Man. Yes. Okay, I haven't seen that one in a bit. But I would have to rewatch that to to really attest to that. Yeah, the swinging around is is clearly just a CGI person, and CGI always looks a little too. Okay. Yeah. Cool. No. Now that you mentioned, I do remember that. Like you can definitely tell it, like it wasn't anything practical. Yeah, and it this doesn't necessarily look practical, but I think it it looks like more like it fits the surroundings than Peter Parker did. It's not 100%. There's a couple of scenes that it looks faker than others, but um I think a lot of problems especially with 
not early, this isn't really early CGI, but it, it's not what we're, we're dealing with the last decade. I, I don't know what the technical term is, but it can be blended into the scenery badly. Like the lighting on it doesn't fit right or something. And I think in the Hulk, they do pretty good with what was available to them at the time. It did not strike me as ugly watching it again, which I was worried it would because it's been a while since I've seen the movie. Like the practical effects of when he's running through the desert, you know, you're seeing dust and stuff kick up. When yeah, he's landing, you know, bouncing off of the ground, you actually see cracks form in the ground. That desert scene is great. I I, I really like the look of it. This movie that, that is yeah, that is the budget right there, you can tell. <laughs> Yeah, this movie um, but is... the the desert scene is you know you, you you were questioning earlier the the look of the Hulk the desert scene does emphasize my second problem I do not like a twenty five foot Hulk oh because he keeps getting he huger and bigger and yeah he he shouldn't like he he shouldn't be that tall yeah uh, that is, is that is one of my biggest qualms there you know, is like, kind of yeah Hulk gets stronger but he doesn't need to get taller <laughs> he gets really tall. And then, like, in the end, we see him revert back when 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 he sees Betty, you know, like like when the the closing moments and and like I almost expected to see like a pool of water like left behind because like, how do you swell so much, dude? <laughs> yeah, because it, it, it seems to be coming off of him in steam. It raises a very weird question then, like, where is all that extra matter coming from and where is it going? Yeah, like like the the first transformation was really good, like the bone breaking and whatnot. But then like after that, uh, you know, especially like the D transformation, it just there was there was like nothing to it. It was like, oh uh, okay. Yeah, he just <laughs> especially that, like the last scene. It, it's like, uh that's okay. You you could have you could have finished that off better. I don't I don't know how you would have. But... Well, I think it all would have worked better if they had done it like. <laughs> like in a werewolf movie that has no budget where he basically like falls behind something and when he pops up he's a human right yeah you just see the screams and you see like a hand you know like grasping as it's green you see people's reaction you turn back and it's back to a regular hand all sweaty or something <laughs> yeah the detransformation moment is definitely a scene that that did not need to be in there they did not need to spend the money on those special effects it could have been handled much more concisely and maybe they could have saved that money on on improving a couple of the other moments i will say like i i recognize this movie has flaws it does take like 45 minutes for the hulk to show up which i don't mind i like the family drama but there is a lot of it that is is very quiet to the point where you can if you're going to see a big green guy like if you just want to go see hulk smash it can be a frustrating experience. The blast of gamma that he gets where he's like protecting the guy. That was, that, that was not the best special effect. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of those where like when Nick Nolte blasts himself with gamma radiation and they kind of, they, they use this weird filter where it kind of, you know, it inverts the color scheme and, is showing in yeah. and stuff. They, that that was like one of the cheapest things in like all the movie. It's like what what what, what is this? <laughs> I, I I mean and I one of the biggest deviations. Um, if you don't know the original storyline in the comics is the way he's exposed to uh, to gamma radiation is due to a bomb they're creating, uh, a gamma bomb. Yeah, I, I knew it was it was a little bit different. I did think that this scene was a little bit more Watchmen, like Doctor Manhattan than what the comic yeah. book was. So I really like 
I like this movie's style, even though Ang Lee ha- hasn't crafted the most engaging uh, like drama in the first 45 minutes. I think he does a, a pretty good job speeding things along with his transitions and making things look like a comic book. But what I really like about it, especially with the desert military base and Danny Elfman's score and the focus on the science and experimentation. Oh, man. This this might be like the best score on a Marvel movie. Danny Elfman, who also did Spider Man, I believe. Yeah. He yeah his like just the opening like the the opening sequence was was so good. Yeah. Well, with with his score, this movie really recalls like a 1950s Adam Age sci fi horror movie. I I love the look of it. Like I'm trying to think like them or even Tarantula, like all these movies that are just set like around Los Alamos and everything. The music, Danny Elfman was brought in like kind of at the last minute. The movie had been completed. Universal rejected the original score by Michael Dana, who had had worked with Ang Lee previously. But I guess Danny Elfman liked that score because the original score was a lot more like taiko drumming and percussion. But Danny Elfman apparently took parts of that score. So the original score, you hear it at a couple of scenes in this movie. The, The Middle Eastern kind of vocalizations singing while he's hopping through the desert, that's like part of the original score for this movie. Hmm. You know what I said about earlier about this kind of not like being an uncomfortable mix of an, a more respectable like Oscar drama and a superhero movie. I, I read some reviews at the time. I was kind of like, why did people not like this? And Roger Ebert, who liked this movie, he gave it three out of four stars. He said at, in his review, he said, this is a comic book movie for people who wouldn't be caught dead at a comic book movie. And that, is probably part of the problem of why people didn't like this. Like even the critics that liked it, when I, when I would read reviews from critics who liked this movie, they were all kind of looking down their noses at comic book movies. And they kind of had that like high and mighty. It was early in in the, you know, Marvel, Marvel hadn't even started rolling out their, their connected universe. Iron Man hadn't come out yet. No, Iron Man came out five years later. Yeah, no, that's not, I know, I know that's when Incredible Hulk came out was five years later. And that was right after Iron Man, like within a year. So that sounds about right. That's crazy to think that the Incredible Hulk was the second Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Nobody really remembers that. I mean, it, it's like when you're talking about the MCU, nobody really brings up the Hulk because they, they, they haven't been able to really get him right until they just decided to use him as a like a character in other movies instead of giving him a movie on his own. It's it's hard to do the Hulk. It really is. Like even story wise, like I sometimes feel that Hulk should just be a natural disaster. Other heroes respond to. Yeah, I remember. I think we had this conversation when we were working at the comic book store, and I thought I I was thinking about that. And you're absolutely right. Even though while I was working there with you, I was really big into the Incredible Hulk. I think it was Greg Pak was writing it at the time, and he was it was talking about Planet Hulk. Yeah, it was around World War Hulk and Planet Hulk. I even really like continuing it after it it stopped being Hulk and it was the Incredible Herc. I I have the, that run. <laughs> I actually, yep, and I I enjoyed the Incredible Hulk, uh, Incredible Herc with Amadeus. <laughs> no, Planet Hulk was great. Great pack. It was uh, for those looking. Uh, Incredible Hulk number ninety two is when it starts in two thousand six. But there are plenty of collected. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, no, that that's that's when I was reading the Hulk and really enjoying the stories. Um, so just to get back to like the point I was trying to make is that 
all of the reviews that liked this movie kind of looked down their noses at comic book movies and had this tone that was like, oh, at last, a comic book movie that is serious, a comic book movie that is good. And I, I really hated that tone because the a lot of the public perception around this movie is that Ang Lee didn't care about comic book movies. Like that, uh, people assume that Ang Lee had that frame of mind too, that he didn't respect comic books or the Hulk. I don't think that he knows a lot about comic books. I think that's an accurate complaint. You could say he didn't know what the storylines were or what, you know, or what the mythology was, even though he didn't write the script. It's clear this is one of those movies before they decided to, to like keep everything as accurate to the books as possible, where they, they take a lot of liberties. So you can say that about him, but I do think he respected comic books. And you can see it in like his visual style because he is trying to capture the feel of reading a comic book. And I think, I think he is trying to elevate it in the best way. Like he's not trying to elevate it by going like, oh, this is a really stupid thing that I'm going to try and make smart. He is elevating, trying to elevate it in a way where he's like, oh, I like these aspects. I want to show these aspects to people on screen. I want to, I want to amplify these aspects I really like. It, it just didn't connect with people. And, you know, because he, like we, we've said before already, he just didn't. He didn't focus enough on the Hulk for what people wanted. Maybe people didn't need an origin story. Maybe he could have taken out some of the some of the multiple storylines and just kind of mo yeah. focused more on the Hulk. But uh, that, that's that's my biggest thing is is not necessarily he didn't need an origin story, but he didn't need that much of an origin story. You know, it's like uh, Iron Man. First movie was his origin story. Iron Man two was an origin origin story. You know, like the year one origin story one might say you know just getting some of them them further back information is building up with like what his dad did it's just they 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 were trying to tell so much in this one i feel that they could have they could have if if they had the chance spread it out a little bit more that's true and they did actually they were working on a sequel the writer for this one james sheamus had begun a script for a sequel and apparently part two would have featured the gray Hulk persona. Joe fix it. Oh, yeah. That's one of my, yeah. Along with uh, the, vi the villains being the leader and abomination. And apparently the universal asked for abomination because they wanted a actual physical threat to the Hulk, but they, they kind of drug their heels, especially after this movie was so disliked. And so the rights reverted back to Marvel because they took too long getting that going. I mean, when, when I think of the Hulk, like the, the two villains I think of are the leader and the abomination. It makes sense. And that's what they ended up doing with the incredible Hulk, correct? The, um, yep. Yep. The Edward Norton, Louis or Louis, Le, Louis or Louis Leterrier. I saw that in the theaters. I haven't seen it once since, which I, I know people who say like, it, it's a B movie, not a B movie, but it is just trying to be an action movie. And so it's got its fans, but for all of its faults, I, I've watched this one more and would probably return to this again before I rewatched it. You know, I'm 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 the same way. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure I only saw the Incredible Hulk once. <laughs> like I'm trying to think if I saw it another time. Um, I remember there were some parts. There was a bunch of of Easter eggs in that one, which was cool. Uh, I did not like how the Abomination looked in the end. There's like a part like his head just looked funky. Um, I don't think they did enough with the leader because I think they were just foreshadowing the leader, if I recall correctly. In that, uh, 
I don't remember if he actually had that huge of an impact. In the, in yeah, the I, I don't remember too much about it either. But yeah, interestingly, I, I always said that that after seeing it, I said that you could consider The Incredible Hulk a direct sequel to Hulk, even though they don't have that much. It always common. felt like it, yeah, because because The Incredible Hulk they skip over the origin, you know, like completely, and it, and it almost feels like they expected most of the audience to have seen the Hulk and to just infer that you basically know what the origin is. Yeah, well, the 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 Incredible Hulk. It begins with Bruce Banner hiding out in South America, which is where he ends Hulk. Like he's hiding out in South America. Apparently it was Spanish. You won't like me when I'm angry. (laughs) Yeah. Is that's the only time he says it, right? Because he says at one point, he's like, you're, you're making me angry right before he changed the first time. But he doesn't actually say that you wouldn't like me when I'm angry until the end of the movie. And he says it in Spanish. It's subtitled. Yeah. But the, Incredible Hulk was written originally to be a direct sequel or reboot of the Ang Lee version, which is why it begins in South America. But Edward Norton, I mean, everybody knows what happened with Edward Norton. He rewrote the script. He was kind of apparently not fun to work with, which is why he didn't come back. But he rewrote the script. And the only thing that remains that ties it to the first movie is the South America bit. I mean, it works. We, we didn't necessarily need a whole nother origin. You know, it, oh, it yeah. kind of fits. Like if you want it to be a sequel, it can be. And, and uh, you know, it kind of should be just so that we do have something fitting the larger MCU Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's a bit of a shame that this didn't do better because of the, I think maybe because of this movie, Marvel has not allowed any single director that much creative control. They have not allowed anybody to just kind of like, I am going to put my stamp. This is my movie. The closest we get is probably James Gunn, but that's just that's because James Gunn's vision seems to also be very in line with what Marvel wanted to do. So it's a really good working relationship. But we don't really get anything like like even the first the first Sam Raimi Spider Man or Sp- Spider Man Two is more of a Sam Raimi film where yeah. a lot of control is giving over. You can watch that movie and say, oh yes, this is a Sam Raimi movie. Now, the directors, they're getting really good directors. They're getting great. I, I like the Marvel movies. I'm not trying to say like I, I'm too good for them. I like all of them. <laughs> I like all of them. I'm just saying that they're, they're no longer as distinctive as something like this. Right. The, a lot of them now fall under the cookie cutter, that's for sure. The idea that Ang, Ang Lee somehow saw this material as kind of beneath him, which, you know, some people like I, I just know people think he's disrespecting the comic book i think he he's really into this if anything his last 10 years his filmography has shown that he's he's a director that just really loves spectacle and he loves playing with how a movie looks on uh, particularly the imax he's been doing stuff like billy lynn's long halftime walk which is I think the only reason that you would ever see that is because in imax it looks amazing <laughs> or gemini man i don't know if you saw that it he he's clearly like oh, just, yeah, yeah. he's trying to play with with action on screen. So the so Hulk is clearly something that you know he enjoyed doing. I I think he he just misjudged what people wanted out of it. But I still think it's like a fascinating movie. I I really enjoy it quite a bit. Yeah, and and really some 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 
you know, I, I felt Sam Elliott as General Ross, like General Ross is known for his mustache and who rocks a mustache better than Sam Elliott. Uh, I do believe he did a better job than uh, William Hurt, I think. was. I believe, yeah, it was William Hurt. He, he does really, really well, especially since he's playing so much against type. I think all of yeah, the actors... it, it shows like Sam Elliott often gets typecast. Let's face it, you know, he's he's mountain man, you know, give him a gun, you know, but here it's it's oh. He does have some range. Look at that. Yeah, I think he comes right right up to the point of overacting. Um, you could say Nick <laughs> Nolte goes over that edge and really does overact. But Sam Elliott, he, he has so much rage bottled up. He's just always like red-faced and, and about to explode. And I think he plays it perfectly. I really dig all of the casting in this. I do like Eric Bana. I just think that the material he's given or how he's told to play it or maybe just how he decided to play it is unfortunately just kind of a little a little too bland we forgot to talk about the the hulk poodles oh yeah i even have the page reference or the uh, comic book that referenced those that's the funny thing (laughs) oh is that is that taken from the comics yeah it did happen well i don't recall if there was a poodle but hulk dogs do happen in the comic Okay. Was that, that was like one of the few comics I, I had notated. It, it's like not a good story or anything, but it's actually one of the few issues I had notated. I didn't even talk about the Absorbing Mental Time. Comic. One of my favorite comics, I, I was mentioning the relationship between Absorbing Man and Titania. Uh-huh. There, there is a Valentine's Day special, 1997, that deals with Crusher Krill trying to get Titania and Millie the model doll like she had as a little girl and he's not trying to steal it. He's trying to like legit go to like a pawn shop or a comic book store or whatever. I don't remember, but he's trying to buy it, you know, like legit pay for it. Um, and, and he gets recognized as a villain and like a whole instant ensures and like, he's not trying to commit any crimes, but these heroes are like trying to feed him in the end. Like he gets out and he goes back to, to see Titania, but like the Millie's all burnt to ash, and he's sad. But she's like, "Oh, you tried to get this for me. You're the best crusher. They're the best relationship." Damn it. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. The the poodles. I remember in particular people talking about how silly the movie was and mentioning that. And honestly, I, 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 I mean, all the things people don't like about this movie, I kind of like. I don't know. It is a little bit silly and maybe not in the way the rest of the movie is. But I think I think Ang Lee did come to this with a a bit more of a sense of humor than people give him credit for. Just- I, I, I never found them silly. They made sense to me. The father's trying to experiment, you know, trying to recreate while also trying to get, you know, a little bit of henchmen. And it also shows like his disregard for life. You know, he, he didn't care. They're just tools to him. They weren't dogs or, or pets or anything like that. But if you ever want to see Incredible Hulk Volume 2 back in like 2000, uh, I think it was like 13 has a cool cover, but the dogs really appear in number 14. Um, Do you have anything else you want to say before we head off or get to the next movie? Uh, Well, if anyone's looking for um, some good Incredible Hulk reads, um, as we mentioned earlier, Planet Hulk 06, Greg Pack was awesome um peter david has done some of uh my favorite incredible hulk storylines he had a 12-year run on incredible hulk 
going from issues 331 to 467. Uh, he did probably like two of my favorite stories, Incredible Hulk Lies, with uh, Future Imperfect, where Hulk actually goes into the future and faces off a future version of himself who has like a trophy room of all these fallen hero items, including like Captain America's shield and Silver Surfer Surfer. Really cool. And he does another future story of the Hulk called Hulk the End, where like all that's left on the planet is Hulk and Hulk-sized cockroaches that like eat him alive every day. And, and, and it's pretty awesome stuff. Well, that, that was almost uh, a one-shot, right? That was just like one story? Yeah, one, um, Hulk the End is a one-shot. Future and Perfect are, are not a one-shot because there's two of them. And last I saw, those were, the three of them were collected in, in one single you know, uh, trade paperback. Yeah, I but have... if you're looking for some great uh, Wolverine stories too, um, Wolverine had his first appearance in uh, Cameo Appearance 180 of Incredible Hulk 181. Uh, but one of my favorite Peter David stories was uh, Incredible Hulk 340, where it's Wolverine versus Joe Fixit, which is the gray version of Hulk. Uh, we also learn about Hulk's crazy healing factor and Joe Fixit. It's the Hulk as a bouncer in Vegas. I mean, Peter David does some great stuff. Yeah, I I need to get back into it. I I I've read some Peter David. I like him, but I haven't read um well, I haven't read any of his Hulk, I think, except for the end. I've read the end. Yeah, definitely definitely check out Future Imperfect if you haven't. The Maestro um is is such a character that it has like he currently has a title out right now. Right. And that's that's your your future future Hulk with a beard. He looks pretty awesome. What's the last thing you remember, Danny? He said we had to run. The reason you survived is because you're a very uncommon girl. You're not alone. Not anymore. Do you know what mutants are? Would anyone like to share their first time? Rain? I was 13. I thought it was a dream. I just lost control. Sam? I started panicking. People got hurt. Roberto? My girlfriend had burned hair. Ileana? I killed 18 men. One by one. It's a cage. It's important we find out your power so we can help you get better. I saw something. I don't think she wanted me to see. I don't think we're here to get better. The New Mutants. So after nearly three years in limbo, owing to proposed reshoots and the fallout from D- the Disney acquisition of Fox. Uh, I like how you said limbo because you don't even know how that relates to New Mutants. <laughs> I what? Limbo is a thing oh. in New Mutants. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I Now that you mentioned it, I do know that. But okay. So let me, we'll, we'll talk about this. Let me get through a little bit of an intro here. The New Mutants is finally here on rental 
and soon to be on demand, uh, telling the story of a group of young mutants being held in a facility while they come to grips with their newfound powers. The newcomer in this group, Danielle Moonstar, played by Blue Hunt, holds an undiscovered power that threatens everyone in the facility. Now, this one, this is the movie that got us on the tangent that led to today's entire episode because you had said how much you really, really wanted to talk about this. So knowing that this is your favorite comic book story of all time or one of your favorite arcs of all time, I think I am going to just kind of take the back seat and let you start if you want. When did you, like, what are your thoughts? Like, did you like this movie when you first saw it? Yeah, I, I well, <laughs> when I first saw it, I have a very horrible tendency to fall asleep in movies, and I did. Not, for no lack of this movie wasn't awesome, I was excited going in. Like, I was trying to eat food to stay awake. I just I just fall asleep during movies. It, it kills me. I hate it. And, and I fell asleep, like, just about at the halfway point and literally, like, come to... At the end, uh, like after the the mansion has been destroyed and they're like looking around and was like, was like I just missed something. I just missed yeah. the whole damn movie. You missed the whole movie. Okay. But yeah, no, New Mutants. Um, New Mutants uh, is is a spinoff of X Men comics. Um, the original New Mutants came out in a graphic novel, Marvel's graphic novel number four, uh, written by the legendary Chris Claremont. Um, art by Bob McCloud, I believe, and it it, it deals with with uh, Xavier starting basically the original concept of the X Men over again when Dave Cockrum had re redefined the X Men with giant size X Men number one. They had taken the the aspect of Xavier's being a school for youngsters and and brought in the what's referred to as the international teams with Wolverine and Nightcrawler, Colossus, Storm. They were all grown up, you know. They weren't they weren't teens in school anymore. We had that going for a while, and and Claremont took over right after uh, 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 Cockrum and uh, well, actually Cockrum was the artist. Uh, Lynn Wing was the writer for Giant Size X Men. Um, Claremont took over after that, you know, and and was doing such success successful stories. Uh, on Uncanny X-Men, like if you think of any of the big movie storylines that happen, um, X-Men, Dark Phoenix, you know, uh, Days of Future Past, those were all all X-Men and, and Byrne. John Byrne was the artist at the time. They did some of the great things, but they decided to do a spinoff and go back to some of the original, you know, concept of the X-Men. So Xavier started up students, uh, students back in. In the time for the comics, what was happening is he thought the X-Men were all dead. He saw them like lost in space, kind of like depressed. And at the same time, Fantastic Four had discovered a new mutant in Marvel Team Up number one. Character doesn't even appear in the movie. So one of the only original new mutants that's not in this movie was Xian uh, Zonkoi. Uh, I'm probably saying her name wrong. Um, but Karma uh, has ability to take over minds. She she was the only character before all the others. Technically, I guess Ileana also had an appearance, but she wasn't one of the first New Mutants. Like Maureen Mataggart, who shows up in some other movies, she had Rain Seclair as a ward for her and, you know, having her troubled. Very similar to the story in the comics where saved her from a reverend, uh, saved her from a mob uh, trying to to lynch her, basically. But brought her to Xavier, like you need to start up, you need to you need to teach these these students, and and we got you know the new mutants going on, and 
just it, it was it was awesome because it was students you know ex exploring their powers uh dealing with like just your everyday kid angsty stuff great writer chris claremont did it for the longest time uh followed by louise simonson another one of my favorite writers she took over a new mutants number 55 um uh, eventually it ex uh turned into x-force Deadpool, one of you, one of the most famous characters, actually original appearance was in a New Mutants comic. So yeah, some some great history there. Yeah, so that all sounds quite a bit different than the movie we got. What did you end up thinking about the movie when you finally did sit through the whole thing? I I, I did enjoy the movie. Um, they do change some big things around, and, and you know I'll, I'll go over some of those changes as we're watching it. But I I enjoyed it. One of one of the things I know if I saw this years ago, I probably would have enjoyed it as much. Um, but as as a fan of comic books, um, I had to learn early on that comic book adaptations are nowhere near true to the original story. When the first X Men came out, I was so excited about that movie coming out. I, re I remember going to the theater to see that. You know, like to this day, that's still a big memory for me. And I remember how disappointed I was with the movie because, you know, like at that time too is when I really started like diving into X-Men. So knowing all the stories and whatnot and, and the, the characterizations and everything that was changed, I was like, what is this? This is no X-Men story. What is this? Ah, this is an awful X-Men story. Those aren't my X-Men. And after years of, of movies not being like they are, you know, I've, I've, I've come to accept, you know, it's like, oh, this is a different universe. You know, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's a, what if it's a, an Elseworlds don't, don't expect it to be like your stories. This is loosely based off of your stories. And, you know, I've, I've, I've definitely come to accept that, you know, not, not all movies can be a true adaptation like Sin City. <laughs> yeah. So I, my history with it is I've never read the new mutants. <laughs> I, like, we've talked about how I, I, my comic book reading was for the most part DC and I, I was kind of jealous of you because the X-Men looked really fun. I just didn't know where to jump in and new mutants. I, I always liked the art that I saw. The art that I associate with it is uh, Bill Sienkiewicz who. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I got, and, I got and, excited just thinking about Sienkiewicz. I remember seeing some of that as a kid, like back issues or graphic novels or whatever. And thinking to myself that the new mutants was, was, going to be kind of a scary book <laughs> the first first time reading through um demon bear saga which a, a big part of this movie is based on that is written as a horror movie bill st kevich's art in that is so great because he has he has the shadow of the demon bear creeping into the panels like from off panels the, the between the panels like it, it was a horror. You should have felt scared about that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, over the years, I wanted to go back and read it. And so Bill Sienkiewicz, you see some of his art in the credits here. Um, uh, he did the title, um, the New Mutants title work, actually. Yeah. The main title. Yeah. And the end credits, you see a little, some of his, his uh, drawings of the demon bear, which I mean, we'll get to it. I, his drawings look much cooler than what we see in the movie. But it, it's hard because what are you going to do? It's just ones and zeros. It's a it's a CGI threat. So I've never read it. I I didn't know any of these characters really. And I'm trying to think if I if I really I, I mean I was I was familiar with them 
because I even though I didn't read the X Men in the nineties, in I, uh, me and my friends, I would I would buy those X Men trading cards. The was it Fleer Ultra <laughs> was doing those? Yeah, Fleer. So or Skybox. Oh, that it was. I think it probably Skybox. They, they both think. they both had uh, cards. So I mean, you could have had both Skybox and Fleer. Possibly, I, but I, I loved. I just liked trading cards at the time, and. And I liked the art on a lot of them. So I probably knew these characters by name and could probably conjure an image I, of them I in my head. I doubt it, that because I know most of the Skybox and Fleer cards. And unless you had the like Skybox X-Men series two, these characters really didn't appear. You may have might... had a few of them showing up in X-Force because the cards you're talking about were coming around 91, 92. And then at that time... New Mutants had already transformed over into X-Force. Well, I I don't know what to tell you then. All I know is that when I hear Wolfsbane and Cannonball and uh, like Magic, I I know them, but I have never read anything with them in it. I know that. Yeah, they, they, unless you're like really into X-Men, like they, they, they're like, if you, if you're into X-Men, they're kind of like, you should know them. But if you're not an X-Men and X-Men are just like a tertiary comic title to you, all of them can easily be overlooked. The more popular characters nowadays, uh, the ones who have definitely grown out of New, Mut- New Mutants titles, especially nowadays, is Magic. Uh, Ileana has has really grown into uh, one of the more mainstream characters. Like She shows up as a main character in, in X-Men for quite some time now. And then Cannonball has had many a times when he's he's been a more popular character, and, and those two have actually been on an official X Men team and not just an offshoot team like all the others. But yeah, otherwise, like Danny Wolfsbane, uh, Roberto, like none of them have have really been on an actual X Men team. Only like New Mutants were X Force. Um, though at one point, Sam and Roberto were both on versions of the Avengers, uh, most notably the title that became U.S. Avengers, and that was really fun. Um, they they don't they 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 kind of deal with Roberto and Sam's friendship in this, but they really don't go into the bromance that is Sam and, and Roberto. They are one of the funnest like buddy relationships in in all of the Marvel U, and and have stayed friends like throughout their years well the movie the movie doesn't go too deep into any one or their relationships in particular it it delves into each character a bit but it's kind of it's more focusing on the trauma yeah and it's more about the ensemble so we just get a little bit from each character we don't focus too much on anybody except for danny that danny gets the most clearly and her relationship with rain but the movie does show And, and danny has arguably been one of the more Focal main characters of New Mutants throughout the years. Like Cannonball has also been one of the, the strong main focal characters. Uh, but both her, Danny, and and Cannonball had co co leadership of the team for the longest time. Okay. And as far as like characters who powers have gone through greatest transformations, Danny is right right up there. <laughs> the movie does show a little bit of Sam and Roberto, uh, their friendship, which surprised me. The first scene that I saw them hanging out roberto's doing laundry and they're talking and they seem like very easy friends which was bizarre to me because roberto is introduced as basically the world's biggest asshole 
the way he he talks to Danny right at the beginning. He's like this this entitled sexist jerk, and then immediately, like in the next scene, he's just being really nice and chummy with this wounded guy with a really thick Kentucky accent and dressing in kind of like you know worn worn down clothing. And they talk about how Roberto is this comes from the richest family in Brazil. And instead of doing laundry, he just throws his shirts out whenever they get dirty. So it seemed a that's, little... That's, that's almost little... like actually pretty good for for the characterization of, of Roberto and Sam. Like Roberto... So w- what it is, is they're the only boys at the school. I keep saying that the school is a faculty in this, but like even in the comics, like the, the first lineup, like they're the only boys. They're They're hanging out. It's like... What are you gonna do when you when when all your classmates are are a bunch of high school girls and you only got the the one other dude to hang out with? No, I I get that, and it totally made sense to me on a second viewing. I'm just saying on my first viewing, we get one scene, and he's shown as an entitled asshole jerk, and the next scene, he's being really nice and and caring towards this this guy who seems like they would not ever get along in real life. And it played better for me in the second viewing because then I just realized, or I started to think like, oh yeah, it's these five kids and nobody else. And so I thought their dynamics were handled pretty well because they all got together only because there was nothing else to do. They weren't- Misery loves company. You could tell they wouldn't necessarily be friends out in the real world. And even like the one person that's out, like the lone person is Ilyana who hates everybody. And yet every, they all forgive her and they all hang out because like, what else are you going to do? And, but of course, Ileana like just immediately hates Danny. And that's the major conflict within the kids. But other than that, they all are like, well, you know, we're here. We're, we're going to be friends because that's all we can do. And what else? We, we can't just be in our rooms by ourselves all day. Yeah. The Ileana being, being mean was, was kind of a big change on her character. Usually she's a little distant from everyone else in the comics. Uh, but that's because like the comic story on Ileana is incredibly fucked up. I tried to go read, because we get very little of it here. We get glimpses, and you, you understand there's trauma, but you're never given the exact nature of it. And so I went to Wikipedia to read her character biography <laughs> and be like... What what happened here? And I got three paragraphs in and I was like, fuck this. I have no idea. It's always going to be a mystery to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll, I'll try to do do a, a nice brief comic explanation on, on Ileana. I'm setting a timer. I'm going to set a timer. Let's see. <laughs> so one of, one of my favorite things is she has one of the most expensive first appearances in uh, X-Men comics. Because what's not mentioned in the movie, Ileana is actually the little sister of Colossus. So her first appearance is Giant Size X-Men number one. Uh, everyone knows Colossus's first appearance of turning into organic steel to save his little sister from the tractor. Ileana is that little sister. And you say, wait, little sister? What is she, seven? Well, yes, she was seven. In Uncanny X-Men 145, she shows up uh, in America. She's Actually, I think it's like 140. She's kidnapped by arcade so she shows up in america and she moves to the mansion in 145 uh eventually i think the mansion's destroyed the x-men are hanging out on a island base in the Bermuda triangle that has uh, like creatures that they stole from magneto 
And as the X-Men are hanging around a campfire, Ileana hears voices coming from a temple. She goes and she checks out this temple and there's these weird floating discs all over the table or all over the floor. And, and she's like looking in and like, just as the X-Men are like, oh, where's Ileana? Where's this little girl? They go looking for her. And as they see her, she falls into the portal and Kitty Pride reaches in and she grabs her arm and she pulls out a 13-year-old Ileana. She went from seven to 13. Yeah. And the X-Men knew nothing about it. And the great thing is, the readers knew nothing about it for, I think it's like two, three years before the Magic Ileana, like, Rasputin story miniseries came out, a four-part miniseries that deals with what happened. Ileana is a mutant, um, and her actual mutant power is to control these teleportation disks. These teleportation disks are our way to teleport. They go through both space and time, uh, but they use a waypoint um, in a, a different dimension called Limbo. It's a, a hell-like dimension. And, and, and it's ruled by Demon Lord Blasco. Um, Ileana fell through the teleportation disc and she is raised by this Demon Lord Blasco. Part of his raising of her is slaughtering that universe's versions of the X-Men. He raises her as, as a witch. She actually learns how to cast sorcery. Uh, it's, it's a great miniseries that deals with that. She escapes Blasco, she is raised where she is further trained in white magic by that versions of Storm, uh, that, that reality's version of Storm. So she goes from learning dark magic to light magic. Uh, there's a whole aspect of her, like uh, one, of the, one of the things Blesco had done earlier is taken part of her soul to make a blood gem that's all about bringing his demon, like elder god lords into, like he wants to merge realities and eventually make Earth into a, a hellscape. And, and that's a storyline that doesn't get resolved for years. Uh, but when when Ileana is focusing her mind, I think it's after Storm is killed, she's, she's trying to reach and, and create something because that's one of the hardest things in magic and, and one of the things uh, for white magic that, that uh, Storm was trying to teach her. And she takes part of her soul and she actually creates her soul sword, which is like the, the penultimate of her magic. And they that thing, is just it's its own story the the soul store soul sword creates her eldritch armor so like you see the armor that forms up on her that's that's part of the sword it, it can slice through like any spells crazy story but yeah they they went with years without knowing and part of the ongoing story for iliana is they they believe she like xavier can't read her mind because of the magic training she has he senses something from her. They know that she's casting good spells. She doesn't reveal what happens in Limbo because she doesn't want them knowing about Blasco. And she eventually has this ongoing turmoil of, of fighting what's referred to as the Dark Child. She has a, a persona that turns demon. She gets all cloven hooved, grows horns, gets a prehensile tail. Like, yeah, Ileana is crazy. Huh. Okay, well, that was under five minutes. So you did pretty good. Yeah, because I was I was wondering about Ileana because I knew she was Rasputin's sister, mainly because I was watching with Amber and she recognized, oh, Ileana, Rasputin. But I didn't know 
how terrible her her story was because all we see of it is those smiling men and she... yeah that that part is not comic related that okay. they that is that is some of the uh, the movies like putting her in the sex trade i mean yeah that's horrific but no she was raised by a demon lord and and murdered her brother in a demon dimension yeah but i don't know which one's worse <laughs> it did seem like well okay so what i couldn't get because of how little we're shown was how much of those smiling men were just stand-ins and kind of childish mental blocks covering up sexual abuse as a child because that's what it seems to be that's yeah that's what but, I, I felt it was too but then she also has the you know limbo limbo does make an appearance briefly in the movie she has her special place that she's her able to, to go to yeah. that i wasn't sure how much of that was was supposed to be abuse and how much of it was just a weird nightmare or this weird alternate dimension that she was in, in in the comic books because the only thing we see about them is they look kind of like slender man they've got this mask this they, blank smiling they, they look like the gentleman from buffy the vampire slayer who also make an appearance in this movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, so they're they're very tall their limbs are very elongated when you take the mask off they have no eyes but they have this really wide smiling mouth full of teeth they're dressed now, in see, really shiny black clothes like something you would see people wearing out at a club like, and like suits they're or almost yeah yeah and they're covered in tattoos like they have tattoos on their hands any other than their face and head every visible part of their body has tattoos on it so that's what made me think it was child sexual abuse because it looks very yeah. much like like it, Russian. it definitely feels like that's what it is uh child sex trade so because yeah they look like basically like russian gangsters or what you you imagine russian gangsters from movies to look like um, now when i when i first see the masks that they're wearing i i originally thought that those were going to be connected to uh, uh the right um there's a villain from x factor named cameron hodge who he starts as as one of them like arc or, or angel warren worthington the third he's like his best friend growing up He's he's running his corporate or his business for him, helping helping the X Men, the X Factor, but it's the original five X Men, uh, run their things. But secretly, he hates Warren Worthington, and that turns into he hates all mutants, and he finances this hate group called the Right, and they usually have this body armor, but the body armor has a flat mass that looks exactly like the mass that they had there, so. I, I thought that was going to be connected to the right, but we, we didn't get that at all. I wonder if they took the visuals from it because whenever I see those creepy faces, you know, like to me, the right are, are pretty daunting. You know, they're, they're a menace because it's, it's, it's regular humans and it's all about hate, which is one of the, the big things that's scary about the X-Men. Um, and notably the, the right are responsible for killing uh, Bug Ramsey and New Mutants, which shows a horrific episode or issue it's interesting to think about or or hard to pin down because it's um at the time that they were producing this movie they were still thinking of sequels like at this point they were still thinking like oh what's the tie-in gonna be uh, like what's the post-credit sequence they were they're were originally talking about a trilogy for this and that sounded awesome yeah so maybe they just thought iliana's backstory of being trapped in a dimension for five years or six years 
maybe they just thought that 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 was going to be a little too confusing but to to then replace it with what looks to be she's trapped in this in a childhood sex trade is such a dark decision I, I i get that the original conception of this movie was going to be a horror movie and then you know the studio kind of made them back off on it a bit during See, production. i heard that they made it more of a horror movie during production because there was a preview that came out and everyone got excited because they're like oh it's a horror movie so that's part of the reason it it took so long to come out is that josh boone said he wanted it to be a horror movie uh bill sinkevich had made some statements saying that he'd read the script and thought that he really got the got what they were going for. He wasn't just copying the comics. All the stuff about it being a horror movie, what came out, what, so what the movie is now isn't much of a horror movie. It has those elements, but they did release that trailer a couple of years ago that was super exciting. It made it look awesome. And they decided to go back and do some reshoots. At they, one they point- They took they out were, one of like the most frightening scenes from the trailer that it reminds me of the Frighteners covers where they got like the faces coming out of the wall. Oh, yeah. Well, I should have looked a little bit more into the history of all of this because I just I just know it was a big mess. But at one point oh, yeah. they were they were talking about re reshooting over half of the movie. Everybody was working on different projects so they could never get everybody's schedule to come back and do those reshoots. And then Disney bought Fox. And in the middle of that, everything kind of was in turmoil. Disney apparently looked at New Mutants and said, we don't see much future here. We're just going to cut our losses. And then it took them forever to finally release it. My understanding is that this isn't quite the movie that Josh Boone wanted to make. And it's not the movie that the studio wanted to make originally either. And now that Disney has it and Disney seems intent on just burying everything that Fox owns. Uh, yeah. it, it looks like we're, we're pretty much done with it. Because this, this movie definitely has a weird like, is it part of the X-Men franchise? Are they trying to tie it into the Fox movies? Uh, some some noticeable things. There is some noticeable things just about the opening before the movie even starts. 20th Century Productions, I think is what it said. It's, it's no longer 20th Century Fox. So we didn't have the classic like X, you know, turn it into, uh, you know, amplify it. You know, so, so that was like something I noticed right away. That and when they did the your typical Marvel comic flip, it was in association with Marvel Comics. That 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 was something that was weird noticing right away too. I I think this movie maybe in its original iteration was going to be more specifically tied into the X Men universe. Doesn't the Essex Corporation make an appearance in Apocalypse? Oh, uh, yes, that is a, a suitcase. Okay, so there were there were talks about Essex. Essex is is a huge Easter egg. That's uh, Nathaniel Essex is the original name of Mister Sinister, a like the only big Marvel or X Men villain that hadn't really shown up um, in uh, in any of the X Men movies. And then I, I know I heard some somewhere mentioned that the facility is actually called the Millbury facility. I didn't see that anywhere, but when I was like, I, I thought I recognized the island uh, where the 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 facility. Um, so I did a you know I did a quick check on that. I was like, is that is that the hospital from Shutter Island? And and it is the hospital from Shutter Island. Yes. But when I was doing my research, they commented on 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 calling it the the Millbury facility, and I was trying. I was like, I didn't recall hearing that mention or anything. Um, but Millbury is another name uh used by mr sinister so yeah they, they were throwing easter eggs in that 
Um, and she, uh, Celia Rays, is wearing a little lapel pin that looks like Sinister's diamond on his head. They, they make a very strong point of when that falls off of her, her outfit, the camera has a close-up of it on the ground for a couple seconds. And you think yeah. like, ooh, what's, like, what's this going to be at the end of the movie? And it's never brought up at the end of the movie. But what I had read was that originally they were thinking of post credit scenes. And one of the ideas was to have John Hamm as Mr. Sinister. <laughs> but all of them come up because Mr. Sinister is the king of glam, man. I tell you, like all of those things just went away. It's clear that this was not intended to be the final part of the X-Men universe. But uh, I, aside from I, Deadpool, I felt that they were trying to tie it into Logan also. Like uh, there's a moment where she's getting flashes of of silly raises head and she sees the kids being tested on and that looked a lot like the video footage from uh, the third wolverine movie logan it, it actually is the footage i i'm glad you mentioned that because in the post in the credits it says footage from logan used by permission and i was like well wait okay. what what footage from logan but you saying that okay there we go <laughs> so, this is clearly meant to be part of the x-men universe it definitely was not going to be the last one, but now I think, I think all that we're going to get now, continuing on from this universe, is Deadpool. Because yeah, were... I'm 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 intrigued. Like you know, Marvel does own the rights to the X Men now. Are they going to try to bring them into the greater MCU? That's a big question. Uh, I I think one of the possible ways to do it is is to you know show alternate dimensions and just to to establish it that way if you want. Uh, and call me crazy, but I almost think just still, still uh, something from the DC playbook going back to Crisis on Infinite Earths and just like, oh, we're going to merge our universes or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure how they're going to bring mutants into the, the, the Marvel U because they, they, they basically try to do mutants with inhumans. You know, like, oh, you, you may have been born an inhuman you know that's the thing like mutants are just randomly born there's no accident that has happened they, they should have some establishment by now with all the heroes or suddenly there's just, just going to be a huge event that causes a lot of mutants to happen maybe we'll have like a heroes event there's going to be an eclipse personally i think i would prefer that the universes stay separate i mean it would be a lot of fun to see these characters interact but at a certain point with, with the way the movies are going like the the marvel movies the uh, the confrontations and the showdowns get bigger and bigger like yeah every movie has to end with a planet threatening event it gets to the point where you're like okay why is it only spider-man doing this why aren't any of the others coming to help him maybe not spider-man but you know what i mean like why is it just this one character that has to face off against this this globe or universe threatening event when we've got the rest of the avengers right over there what are they off doing and I mean that's always a question in comics, though, too. It it is. You, know, you, it is. you get some writers who will, will who will make note. Oh, so and so's off planet or or something. I, I do appreciate when writers will acknowledge that other stuff is happening in the universe. Where you get the smart writers who are like, so everything's in New York. Cool. I'm gonna write in San Francisco, which the action happened uh, for a while. We're we're based out of uh, San Fran. That is definitely a problem with these 
sprawling superhero communities and i do get it in the comics as well i mean especially dc it's like well why don't you just call superman superman can't be too busy to help with this literally it's a second for him to get there <laughs> that is that is definitely an in issue but i just feel like the movies like part of what i like about this and what i really like about the hulk or just hulk are that the conflicts are so small scale considering you know, like the end of Hulk, the absorbing man has become basically just a cloud and a lightning storm. It, it, it's a very conceptual fight. So he could become a, like a threat to the planet, but it is still just a fight between a father and a son. And like it's small scale new mutants. It's these five kids are kind of fighting for their futures. It isn't a giant vortex in the sky. It, it's easy enough that. that no one probably had noticed anything had happened. You get the idea, like even, I mean, clearly the X-Men are not aware of these characters even. They're, they are completely sequestered from the rest of the world in all ways. So I like, I like that about this. I wish more movies or even the Ant-Man movies in the proper MCU where his, his threats are much smaller scale. Like they're kind of heist movies <laughs> at times. Um, I'll say Ant-Man is one of my favorite Marvel movies. Yeah, I think, I think more Marvel movies need to take instead of heightening the stakes every movie they need to every once in a while just to have an adventure with the characters and I that's, think that's one of the things i'm excited about black widow because in theory that could just be like a spy movie instead of you know big threat that everyone should see it could be a a world threat that nobody sees because it's going to be happening in the shadows you know no it, it exactly and i feel like with how all these movies escalate bringing the x-men into the avengers world even though like with the MCU, any introduction of the X-Men is going to have to be brand new. It can't have any of the history from the other movies. They're going to be starting from scratch. It just feels like that's going to get way too crowded. <laughs> Whereas if you keep them a little bit more separate, I think it would be, it would be a bit more successful. But what do I know? I mean, I, they're, going to, they're going to come out with Avengers 6 and it's going to have the X-Men in it and I'll love it. Right. <laughs> They'll force you to love it. I, I, we're kind of like talking all around this movie, but getting back to it, I have no familiarity familiarity with these characters, and I liked the movie. I watched it twice, and I liked it more the second time because I think I think I did expect it to be a horror movie, and after watching it the first time, I'm like, well, that's not really a horror movie. It's kind of this weird middle ground thing. It's it's, it's more a little psychological than yeah. Horror. It definitely gets to horror aspects, especially with the smiling men and the fact that Danny's power is basically she is giving everybody visions of their greatest fear and she, she's not aware she's doing it. Yeah. And those are definitely horror moments, but the movie doesn't have a horror tone. It never actually feels scary in any way, at least not to me. There's, there's a little bit with, with Sam. Sam. Sam is definitely in a horror movie. Of all the characters... Sam is in the horror movie, you know, he's the one who's freaking out, you know, we, we see his, his nightmare in the mine, uh, which is a big change on his story. In the movie they have, he's the cause of his dad's death while being in the mines. In the comics, his dad has died and Sam actually needs to quit school and go work in the mines. So like, that's a big change. And honestly, I, I, I like that one a little bit more because like it's something he didn't want to do. It's something he had to do because Sam has eight siblings. Well, one of them Kentucky coal mine families. And, and it's like poor 
you know, one of the, one of the things they actually stress in the comics, in order for Sam to actually go to the Xavier Institute, they pay what his wage would have been so that his family can like they he he couldn't actually leave. Um, in the New Mutants graphic novel, Sam is actually a villain. He is hired by um, Donald Pierce of the Hellfire Club to be a little henchman in his little scheme because he's offering money to pay and Sam doesn't want to go back to the coal mines. But he saves people. His power first manifests in the coal mines, so that part is is still in true with the story, but he he had saved some other miners from a collapsed coal mine. So yeah, they, they changed that up. He, he did always hate and fear coal mine, but they changed it to him actually fearing it because he killed his paw down there instead of him having go to go down there because his paw died from black lung. Ugh. But yeah, I, I feel he's he's in the horror movie and the fact that, you know, the other people had started experiencing things and they're having one of their little counseling sessions and he's freaking out about nightmares. No one else brings up anything. It's like, you guys are experiencing weird shit too. Like, help Sam out. Come on, people. <laughs> well, yeah, but most of the stuff that they experience happens later. Like, uh, Sunspot, Roberto, he doesn't experience anything until he's in the pool with what he thinks is Ileana and then he like turns his back and it's uh, yeah. it's the girlfriend he accidentally killed when his powers manifested and then Ileana doesn't really experience anything until that night that she's in solitary because she, she gets put in solitary well, after she had already I thought she had already experienced I thought we already had Danny's uh, scene of snowflake blood before uh, Sam's freak out well Danny did but Ileana didn't. Ileana didn't see the smiling men until she. Well, wait, what? I thought when the... we had that scene that Danny, that that Ileana had first had a little brief. It wasn't. It wasn't a big scene, but I thought we had seen. It looked like Danny was viewing one of Ileana's memories and then had her little blood snowflake scene. So I had thought that Ileana had actually experienced a few things, and I know that Rain had experienced Reverend Craig. Well, or, he, or yeah, she she experienced Reverend Craig in the confession booth. She yes. didn't say a thing. No, you're right. You're right. Okay. And and she should have said something. Yeah, I saw something freaky in the confession booth. <laughs> it's a good. I I enjoyed this movie. I liked it more the second time. Part of what I liked about it, like I said, is that it it's so off brand for even for the X Men universe. Just these comic book movies all seem to follow a similar template. This one is a, a refreshingly small scale story. It's also very short. It's 90 minutes. And I can't remember the last time a superhero movie it, it was, was less, really quick. Yeah. I can't remember the last time a superhero movie was less than two hours. And, you know, the characters are likable. I, I, I kind of feel like they're not all successful acting wise, especially when it gets to the special effects. But like the, the characters are likable. And I would have liked to see more of them i'm i'm a little sad that we're not going to get any of the sequels yeah the the casting wasn't bad um the roberto casting was a little odd and i know bob mcleod one of the creators had a problem with this he's from brazil and like roberto in the comics especially and something that happens in the comics is like he's a really dark brazilian in the comics yeah he's uh i i read it i looked at it he's supposed to be afro-brazilian and yeah he's supposed to face some of that like colorism back it, like the racism back in brazil the negative attitudes towards people of darker skin tones and so they cast henry zaga who is brazilian 
he was born in Brazil, but Josh Boone was asked about it, why he cast somebody of such light skin. And he got in a little bit of hot water over his response. His response was basically, he wanted the character to look rich, which people took wow. as like, wait, wait, are you saying that dark skinned people can't be rich? So and here's the, here's the weird thing. Like I, I honestly, it makes me really question it too, because Celia Ray's is supposed to be black also. Oh, you really? Yes, yeah, she is a black character. Interesting. I see. I was looking at it, and I was actually like, "Oh, good job! This movie cast indigenous actors for all of its indigenous characters." Like Danny is. I, I actually don't know where what her tribal association is. Oh, uh, Cheyenne. They comment on her being Cheyenne. Cheyenne is what she is in the comics. Oh, the the actress Blue Hunt who plays her. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure if she is also the the same tribal association, but her dad is played by Adam Beach. Um, he was in Flags of Our Fathers, Smoke Signals, Wind Talkers. He, he's an indigenous actor. And I knew in the beginning of the movie, you see him and he has one line. And I'm like, okay, we're going to see him again later. And <laughs> I was right. We get a second line at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it was like a whole lot. He's he's not like a superstar, but he's such a big actor. I was like, there had to be more for him to do in this movie. Why are you I mean, to be fair him? though, that movie has no extras. Sure. He is the closest thing. He has the least amount of lines. No one else has less lines than him. Except That's true. I guess there I, there might be eight extras who are running around in that opening scene, but no 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 one else has a stop scene like where they're actually in focus on a camera. Like otherwise it's just the students, it's just Julia. We don't even have a cop, whether it's helping you out because you have a torso or busting you because you have a body in your trunk, you know, like nothing. I was curious. I, I looked up Henry Zaga because of that, because I was, well, not because I, I looked up Henry Zaga because I knew the character was supposed to be darker skinned, but I also thought like, he's the only character that doesn't have any accent aside from Danny and everybody else is doing so much accent accent work. Like Ileana and Anya Taylor Joy's Russian accent, and it's a little inconsistent, but she is really working with that accent. Oh, okay, bringing up the accents and, and inconsistencies, I think that might have been on purpose, especially when you look at Sam's accent. Like, I'm not sure how many people from Kentucky you talk to and and try to you know listen to to I don't know who the actor who did Sam, but listen to that that portrayal of the actor that. Chris Claremont has a very unique way of doing accents. Like, I love the writer, but it, it was a while before I realized how Scottish accents should have been because uh, <laughs> the way Maureen McTaggart talks really isn't <laughs> as phonetically as it should be. And and I feel that Sam, like, definitely hits the, the Chris Claremont, like, Kentucky accent. Like, I, I think that may have been, like, a, 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 a small... Uh, Easter egg. <laughs> well, because he, yeah, it, it's Charlie Heaton plays Sam. He's on Stranger. There we go. Things. Yeah, Stranger Things, like the younger Stranger Things. Sorry. <laughs> but he, he does an accent, and he's doing a Southern accent, but it's such a specific Southern accent, and he's really going for it. The what best it way me... to describe Claremont's accents is he likes to try to make the accent like a thing with apostrophes. Okay. Well, I was going to say what his voice most reminded me of. The accent is thicker than the, this, but he sounds to me like he's doing Michael Rooker. 
And it might just be because last week I watched Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, but he just sounds like Michael Rooker, or he's trying to do Michael Rooker's voice. So it struck me as odd that Henry Zaga has like no accent. And I say no accent from an American standpoint. I'm sure people in other countries would say, what are you talking about? But he just sounds American, I guess I should say. So it surprised me to see that he's, he's Brazilian. And then I found the bit about the casting and Josh Boone saying something that people found questionable about it. So Dr. Reyes, I did not know that she was supposed to be black. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I, I was thinking. And, and was never a villain. So well, that was a, a big change. That's a huge change because I will tell you when I saw, when I saw this movie, well, I mean, the change is clearly that uh, they're not at Xavier's school for gifted. Yeah, I, I, I actually kept wondering if they were going to drop Massachusetts Academy. Um, at one point, there was a title called Generation X. And actually, before, the Massachusetts Academy originates from New Mutants. Um, the New Mutants had a rival school uh, from the Hellfire Club, had their own students. Emma Frost of the Hellfire Club created her team called the Hellions. And they were at a school in Massachusetts called the Massachusetts Academy. And like I, I kept looking, trying to see that, like when I first watched it, I, I, I was expecting that to be an Easter egg because it's like, okay, if we're not at Xavier's, where else could we be? Okay, though the New Mutants actually technically at one point were at the Massachusetts Academy. Um, there was one point where uh, Ileana goes forward for like goes into the future for a year but she can't control her teleportation. And she discovers all the other new mutants have joined up with the Hellions and are being trained there. And she's like, what is this? I got to get back to the past. This is weird. So like that, that was, that was something I kept looking for an Easter egg, but we never get it again. Like I didn't see it, but somebody mentioned the Milbury facility, which okay, would be so, a Easter egg to Essex. So I, that's a huge change about Dr. Reyes being a villain because watching the movie, it was clear, I, I thought it would be clear even to non-comics readers that she wasn't working for Xavier, uh, the way the movie presents it anyway. But not now, maybe comics readers would think she was because she keeps saying, my superior, and the kids all assume that she's talking about Xavier right. and that after they get through with the facility, they'll go on to the X-Men. But I think that's clearly, you know, even on my first viewing, I knew that wasn't going to be the case. What I didn't expect, the surprise to me, was that she would turn out to be completely villainous. I thought she would have like a second, like a change of heart, especially after Something. she's told that she has to kill Danny. I thought, yeah. she, I thought she would at least have a moment where she's like, she starts to do it, but she's having second thoughts and she's like, or or some more of a motivating factor than decides, oh well, my mom was a vet, so I know that sometimes you got to put down things like. I was expecting my mom's a vet and my superior has her. And if I don't listen to her, you know, like something like that. <laughs> she turns out to be completely villainous. She's just, just like, evil. yeah, okay, yeah. I'm going to kill Danny and I am running out of here. <laughs> uh, and the other big change from her comic character is uh, this Reyes does not know how to shield herself. Like there are many a moments where it's like, oh, you should just have a shield around yourself. And like, that's the thing in the comics. I'm, I'm, I can't think of her casting a giant shield or, or doing containment fields. Like her big thing was, was a self shield and, and, you know, protecting herself. Like uh, her, her first big appearance in the comics 
I, I think it was the first parents, or I'm just thinking like one of her, her earlier appearances, is she actually was an emergency room doctor and a character, old villain character named Pyro was suffering from something called a legacy virus and he lost control of his ability, couldn't control his mutant power. And his mutant power is the control and amplification of fire. And he got to the point that like he was causing light-ups from like static sparks and he he needed surgery or something and she revealed that she was a mutant by helping him by throwing up her force field because she was the only one who could get close enough and that was like always her thing is, is, is self-force field but in this movie you know there's there's the moment when she she hears something in the rafters and sees like she has a moment where she should be able to shield herself before she Rain jumps down and and breaks the fuck <laughs> out of her man <laughs> oh yeah when those that that's such a like there's not a lot of violence in this movie and then suddenly she is just running her claws through her face oh yeah there's not a a lot of violence but when there is it's on Celia because like the other time she had like she should have thrown up her shield is like oh is there a noise behind me was that big bear oh I'm gonna get chewed by a bear now it's like where's your shield girl (laughs) and she has plenty of times in both cases she's not very good with her shields despite the oh she's a deer in the headlights (laughs) Despite the fact that she's got she's got a big shield up around the entire facility, I mean it looks like a large. She can leave space. active when she's unconscious. It is, and she comes into the room and immediately puts a shield over Danny, saving her from uh, Ilyana in the early in the movie. So she uses oh, yeah, the shield. Oh yeah, when she first pulls out that soul man, the soul sword looks so cool in the movie. And she's her armor looks so cool. Like she clearly knows how to use her shields quickly, but never over herself. Because yeah, never, never defensively. <laughs> well, so at the end of the movie, the five kids are going after her, and she puts them all in force fields, like their own individual force fields, and she starts to like make the force fields smaller, and she does it so slowly. It's like this is a villain that well, likes she needs a monologue. Yeah, she this is a is true a villain. villain that likes to monologue because there's a moment right, right before she's killing Danny, she could just get oh, right. and do it, but she's <laughs> telling Danny, I'm about to do this to you. And she's going so slowly about it. It gives rain time to run in and let me tell her. you more about my diabolical mother and, and what being a vet does to a child. <laughs> and so when she's lowering those force fields to kill them, she could do it so quickly or even when she she realizes the bear is coming, the bear that Danny is manifesting, instead of like killing Danny and getting rid of the bear, she like turns around and watches the window for a while until it comes closer. I don't know. It, it she's clearly just operating on movie, you know, movie rules. Like there has to be a way for the the good guys right. to get out of it. Yeah. I guess we're we're kind of getting towards the end of the movie plot wise, and I found the ending fight scene. Even on both viewings, I found the ending fight to be kind of confusing. It's structured weird. Like the pace of the fight scene is bizarre. And maybe just like a little bit unsatisfying. Like We, we get some cool effects. Like I, 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 I kind of enjoy when they're beating up the gentleman. We have the one moment when Ileana just like ports out on Sam. But then he he smashes through them. You know, the, the one... The Sam's powers weren't what I was expecting. Um, in the comics, they they focused more on him having a blast field. What Sam can do is generate a, a kinetic field around him 
when his his notable quote is I'm nigh invulnerable when I'm blasted. Like that's something he says quite often in, in the early run. I'm not invulnerable when I'm blasting. You got to put that Kentucky accent to it. And he can actually emit that field around other people, uh, which is how he was able to save coal miners. He was able to shield them and then blast out. Uh, but they 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 don't really have, like it always looks like flames and whatnot and has more of a red, orange, yellow hue when gone in the comics. While this was like a weird green and it and, and looked more like super speed than per se a, a blast field. That's but what... When, that's the way it's described too, is he goes zero to a hundred, like a cannonball is what they say. Yeah. And well, the reason they describe him as a cannonball in the comics is because he has no control when he blasts and he usually like originally he just shot forward and, and like didn't know how to land and stop and would just smash into things like a cannonball. The movie makes no mention of him having any force around him, any kind yeah. of force. So it shows him the first time we see him, he's got a bandage on an arm. He's like scraped and bruised and bloody on the side or, you know, he's healing. And then later we see him attaching himself to this big boulder with a chain and he blasts into the air and kind of flies around in circles really fast. And then rain says something like he's not very good at landing and you see him bounce off the ground a bit. And I'm thinking to myself, he is going a hundred miles an hour and he is bouncing across this concrete. And all he gets is a couple, like a black eye and a broken arm that should be killing him unless he has super strength. But the movie never mentions anything about any strength or, you know, the force field. And that scene yeah, you're talking in the, about in the comics, it's, it's, it's a blast field. And, and, and one of the things is it's only when he's blasting. So if he, if he were to stop it, he's vulnerable. Okay. So, but the, the, the scene you were talking about at the end or towards the end, the final confrontation when the the smiling men are coming after them and he blasts through the hallway to get away from them. You see them, they're all lying on the floor in pieces, like they've been chopped up or like they're dolls, but all the pieces are still moving. Like they're trying to get, like follow him still. You only see it for a split second. I very much enjoyed it. I didn't even detail. notice it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was just like looking, you know, cause you also see like a hole through the wall, everything around was just smashed and he's, he's gone. Um, and then we like right after that scene, we get Ileana finally coming through. Like, because most of the port porting she does looks more like Nightcrawler's vamps, and and like Ileana later in the comics they start to show that, and, and she's always been a stepping disc. Like that's that's the big thing on her powers is is stepping through a portal, moving in that portal. I, I didn't necessarily care for like the first time we see her port. You don't see that portal at all. I think it would have been better to see her create a portal where Danny falls through it and goes behind her. And she's like, what the fuck? Yeah, um, that would have been cool. But who is the who's the other X-Men that was in Days of Future Past with the portals? Uh, Bleak. Okay, so maybe they just thought like, well, we've got one. That's, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, they didn't want to reuse that. And and Ileana is the first one to to have stepping disc. Blink, Blink came out. Uh, in the in the 90s uh generation x which is the spiritual successor of new mutants also really really great great run so i i got a question here that maybe you can answer for me why does iliana have a lockheed puppet that becomes a real dragon after going through limbo Okay, so Lockheed is a thing. Lockheed uh, exists in the Marvel comics. Oh, I know, but he, I usually associate Lockheed with Kitty Pride. Yeah, 
So that is a thing and a, a weird thing. Um, we're going to get into the, the queer coding of this movie. They, they go off and they made Rain and Danny queer in this movie, which I, I found a little odd. Though they didn't mention it at all, one of Danny's powers that is in the comics is she actually has a telepathic communication with animals. And one of the things is when Rain actually transforms into a wolf form, they can communicate. And I thought they, they were trying to show a little bit of that with, you know, like there was one scene where it seems like they were trying to, to communicate, but they didn't do that at all. And it would have been a much better you know, showing that connection with them to to establish, because otherwise Rain is just like the smoothest operator in landing a girl around. Like she picks her up, no problem. Um, yeah, like that. Gosh, why wouldn't they have that in there? That's such a cool touch. Yeah, it is, and it would have made more sense with the queer coding that they did for Rain, uh, but they didn't do it. And in fact, uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, Zian Koima, I'm Karma. I'm sure I'm pronouncing her name wrong. She's Vietnamese, I want to say. So however you would say that. Um, she is a queer character that they cut out of the movie completely. Or what's even weirder is Ileana Rasputin is a strong subject of early queer coding by Chris Claremont with none other than Kitty Pride. There is a well-known essay written by, I believe her name is Segrid Ellis, called Kitty Queer. And it focuses more on Rachel Summers and Kitty Pride's relationship. But Kitty Pride has long been a queer-coded character, often associated with Ileana Rasputin, that they ignored. Like, they took the character, and, and uh, like, the, the biggest problem I have with Rain being the character they decided to do as a queer-coded character is... Her original story was she was so afraid of anything because of her devout religious upbringing. Like one of the biggest stories I always liked, and they, they almost touched on it, is Rain feels dirty about transforming into a werewolf at first because she thinks it's unnatural because she was raised by Reverend Craig, who is like, no, that's, you know, you're a witch. You can't do that, blah, blah, you know. Like, she didn't get the branding. I don't know why they brought the branding in for unnecessary shower scenes. You know, like, her just being lynched was was enough. I guess they, they wanted to add something. She was, she was afraid to just even, like, boys, let alone to go as, as far off from church beliefs as you know, alternate lifestyle like that. It's, it, it, it was a weird choice, in, in my opinion, especially without having that connection that they could have had for them. Yeah, it. I thought it was fine. I, I figured that it wasn't part of the comic books, but I thought it was, worked. I mean, I thought it was a, a fine addition. Um, there certainly can be it, a lack it worked, of like it, it wasn't the worst thing, but it's like you removed one character who is outright, like one of the first, I think, officially open gay characters in, in X-Men. Like, Mystique was always coded that way, but was kept on the wraps for the longest time. Our, our Karma was one of the first that I know, like, came out open, and it was like, oh, hey, wow, Karma's, Karma's gay. And then Ileana, like, there's there's so many testaments to her being coded queer with Kitty, 
to the point that like later on, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, how Ileana went from being seven to, to like 13. Well, she goes back to being seven year old. And when she does, her soul sword shows up at Kitty like, hey, a part of my soul is now with you. Like, if that ain't some kind of <laughs> internal like sisterly love, I don't know what is. I liked it enough. There's um, there's certainly a lack of representation sometimes in these movies, so that I appreciated it. It was weird that Josh Boone uses Buffy the Vampire Slayer twice in this movie to foreshadow what's about to come. So I was thinking about that at first, but you can actually see the DVD collections on the shelves. In oh, yeah. They're, I, they're yeah. watching it because it's all they have. And of course, they've got the Fox library <laughs> when this movie is yeah. made. Um, and uh, my, my question, like uh, the big thing, like in, in the Marvel comics, the t- they, they do reference, you know, like the, the pretty pop culture, but it's Magnum P.I. Like they're always they're always talking like Sam and Roberto love Magnum P.I. And, and the other kids watch Magnum P.I. So I was like, is Buffy supposed to be the new Magnum P.I.? <laughs> well, it, it certainly couldn't be Magnum P.I. now in 20, well, 2017 when they were filming this. I guess it could yeah. be, but. It would have been a bit strange, but I'm just saying the two times that you see them watching Buffy, the vampire slayer, the TV show, uh, the first time it is a scene with Willow and Tara and they're kissing. Yeah. And then of course that follows later, this like not too much later after that, the flirtation between Danny and rain. And then the next time you see them watching it on the graves, you know, there's no better flirtation like lying on the grave. Well, keep that in mind i want to finish this and then there's a sidebar i want to take the the next time that you see them watching buffy it's that the silent episode and it's the gentlemen who look very very similar to the smiling men who show up just a couple of minutes later so it's weird yeah see i i I wondered how much of that was was an effect on iliana's mind like do they just watch that so much that her her childhood trauma combined with the trauma of rain watching way too much buffy that could be, but it, it's weird. It's a weird directorial choice to call ahead what you're about to do by showing another very similar piece of artwork. You can see that this is, if not inspired by Buffy, it, it treads similar ground with, you know, supernatural characters. And it's it's kind of a little bit of a teenage soap opera with horror elements right. that show up every once in a while. Well, uh, it's also a very X-Men TV show. Oh, yes, um, yeah. Buffy is based off of Kitty Pride, which is written by, written and created by Chris Claremont. Yeah, no, that there's definitely. So, so I do believe there that might be like a, a nod, homage to, to the Claremont. I don't know fandom. That could be. I I don't I I don't I don't think so necessarily. But there is definitely a continuation a continuum of influences that are in this movie. What I wanted to sidebar here for a minute when they're out there making out on the graves do you think the did you catch anything is there supposed to be a reference there because the grave the head numbers there's all numbers and the problem is like because i was trying to think like there there is um there's an event secret no yeah secret war two um deals with the beyonder and at one point like he kills all the new mutants and resurrects them. And there is a cover that, that has like the new mutants getting out of their graves. And 
And we see like a 138 or a 148 in the movie on one of the tombstones, the but there, it's a one. It's like, a 137. Like New Mutants stopped at 100. So it's like, it doesn't even make sense. So it doesn't, it doesn't fit. Like, no, the, the, um, the one grave that we see clear enough to read anything, all it says is 137. And it yeah. looks like there might be some more writing, but it's really faint and we can't, like, we're not close enough to read it. Yeah, the, the most notable scene that I could try to think of was was just was just that. You know, it, just, the... it seems like it would mean something. I, I think maybe the simplest answer is that the facility they're at is clearly an asylum of some sort. So those are probably patients that passed away, didn't have anybody oh. to claim them, so they just put numbers on the grave. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's the mental asylum on an island. Maybe yeah, it, a it's, Shutter Island. It's clearly Shutter Island. Okay, do you have anything more you want to say about this? Uh, no, except the lie detector scene bugged me just because how is a lie detector going to work over a jacket? Oh, okay. Yeah, there's, there's some, <laughs> well, here on that note, picking apart little details is Reyes's force field over the grounds at all times. And if so, how is the grass so green? Because we see, oh, yeah, them, we question. see him staring up and the rain is falling, but it's not getting through. <laughs> it's It's bouncing off of the. The force they might field. still have a sprinkler system. They might oh, water. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, it it's such a big place, even though it's only five kids, it's such a big place to just have one person in charge of it. Like you right. think there would be somebody else there besides Reyes. Well, again, though, five kids, do you really need that many more? And she has quite the, the monitoring lockdown system. That's true. That's true. Yeah, they're they're under they're under lock and key. Okay, well, so. I guess in conclusion, <laughs> I enjoyed this movie. I enjoyed it both times I watched it. I think I liked it a little bit more the second time. I, I wish we'd gotten more sequels. And I, I yeah. wish this type of superhero movie would get made more where, like Hulk, it is clearly something they handed over to somebody and to a large degree said, do what you want with it. It cleared the studio, came in and exerted a lot of control. It's not quite what he wanted to make. But he Which, was still he was still given a le level of creative control, I think, is unseen in the rest of the MCU. Of of all the comic book titles to let try to do something different, New Mutants, I feel, fits that perfectly. Because though it started out, you know, very house style and whatnot, when when Bill St. Kevich like started as a artist. He he was not Marvel House. Like if you've ever heard of Marvel House styles, where basically there is a you know you ha you have a, a a concept of how your characters and how your art should look, and and though you'll have a little bit where you can tell like oh this this got to be so and so's lines. There's not much super distinctiveness to it. While Bill St. Kevich literally draws outside of lines. Like he he does he does some crazy real scapes um he does the first appearance of legion and new mutants and that's the son of charles xavier and most of that that's like it's it's dealt inside a mindscape and and the way he does mindscapes is just so awesome like if you're looking for some some great art and and moving away from the norm to really you know open up one's unique art style in a comic book. St. Cabbage is, is definitely one of the early artists that did some amazing stuff for that and, and had the chance to do the New Mutants. Yeah, uh, Sienkiewicz, his art is 
very distinctive. You will recognize it. Once you see Bill Sienkiewicz's art, you'll be able to recognize it ever every time you see it again. Okay, so this, this kind of points to a direction I wish more Marvel or just superhero movies in general would take. A little bit more idiosyncratic. I really wish we'd gotten the horror movie version of this they wanted to make. I definitely really am sad we're not going to see any more of these characters, at least not in this form. It's possible Disney may decide to do something with this property in the future. It's doubtful it'll have any of the same actors or the same kind of setup. They're, they're probably going to do something very different with it. Yeah, I know the original trilogy, they were talking about the, the second movie, they're going to do like an alien invasion, which to me, they're, they're talking about Warlock right there, which is from a techno, techno-organic species that converts things to techno-organic to suck their life out of it and deal with his father. And and he, like, if you want to see some amazing St. Kevich work, look at Warlock by St. Kevich. And then the third movie they were talking about doing was going to be Inferno. And Inferno to me is still one of the, the best X-Men crossovers. And that, that deals with a lot of like, Inferno is an event about Ileana. So that would have been so cool to see. That would have dealt with Limbo. We probably would have seen a lot more dealing with, you know, her special place in the movie at that point, if, if they actually had a chance to build that up more. Would have been cool, would have been cool. So a few things, uh, notable differences in the movie. Um, the demon bear actually in the comics was legitimately a demon. It, it wasn't the manifestation of Danny's powers. One of the aspects of her powers we didn't see a lot of is um, originally her mutant powers didn't actually make physical things. That's something that happened later on in New Mutant Special Edition. She was exposed to machine where her illusions weren't just illusions, but were actual physical items. But uh, she used to not only generate fears, she could generate fantasies also. And we kind of see that with Roberto, but they don't mention it at all, like him possibly getting a hookup with Ileana. You know, that, that, that could have been an aspect of her causing fantasies as well as fears in her powers. Um, but yeah, originally the demon bear was, was actually a demon that somehow her parents were combined into, and all it took was one slash of the soul sword to, to take that out. But there was a really cool scene of, um, of Danny like putting on war paint. I'm not sure how accurate that is to <laughs> the, the first nation and whatnot, but I like, as a kid, I thought it was the coolest thing. Um, and then another big change around was Roberto's story. His powers actually first manifested on a soccer, during a soccer match. And he sends some kid flying and I'm not sure if that kid dies. He did have a girlfriend, but she appears in the New Mutants graphic novel number four and is actually gunned down by some of the bad guys. So they, they, they kind of changed that around. Yeah, I think they're trying to just make everybody's tragedy more personal. I mean, like his, they... his tragedy was still personal. He straight up like sent a kid flying, like transformed in the middle of a, a yeah. game and and well, and yeah it was like yeah. the, the the one thing that the movie didn't build up too much was the fear and hatred of mutants you know they kind of mentioned it but it was more that everyone had murdered someone not just oh you're a mutant people hate mutants it's oh people are going to hate you because you killed somebody it's like no people are just going to hate you in, in in your typical x-men universe yeah reyes says that line where she says that any any mutant that you consider a hero 
likely hurt somebody when their powers came became manifest. And yeah. that that is a theme that everybody has, except for Rain. Rain really only hurt herself when she became a mutant. Everybody else seems to have, well, at least Roberto, Danny, and Sam. Because Ileana, it's never really clear what happens with her. This movie is very vague on some aspects. Like Danny's powers confused me even on a second viewing because she's causing all of these mirages, these these hallucinations, and yet... A code name she went by. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yet, that's why I use the word. <laughs> and yet they, um, they're also physical. Psyche. I expected the W on Rain's neck when she gets branded in that hallucination. I expected that to disappear once Danny became more in command of her powers, but no, it's still there. Looking and it should have, like, originally how her powers worked, it should have disappeared. None of those things should have been a permanent, like, physical manifestation. Yeah, well, was it just me, or did that W on her neck look a little bit more like an M? I think they were trying for that. Is it a W for witch, or is it an M for mutant? So anyway, I was going to say, her powers confused me just a little bit, because I expected... You know, Reyes is watching them on monitors all night, and you see when Danny is sleeping, her psionic levels are like elevated. They, they, they know something's there, but they just don't know what. But there's there's no there's never any connection with what she is doing and the level of her powers. Like you expect, it's going to be more powerful when she's asleep, and it becomes more pronounced that when she's drugged by Reyes later on. But you know, it also happens when she's up and walking around or doing something else or distracted. Like, it wasn't even clear to me for a while that she was doing anything. I mean, it was clear that she was supposed to be doing something, but I was like, well, what, what's happening here? And then the thing yeah. with the demon bear, like, that was so weird. It was like, okay, so she's doing this, but she's also manifested this gigantic demon bear that brings snow with it, that killed her parents and, like, everybody on her reservation. Yeah, yeah was... they, they, they really did grab a few, like, that's the thing I mentioned earlier. Danny has gone through some of the most drastic changes as far as mutant powers have gone and they kind of didn't know what that meant i, I think they read a, a bio and said oh okay this is what she does and didn't realize well not right away all at first like there's there's a lot of uh second at one point she becomes an ass guardian valkyrie and can see death oh my gosh yeah it, it, seems, <laughs> it seems like they grabbed from everywhere and they could have made it work and it, it, I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm just saying the movie never bothers to really draw these lines. It, it It is never cemented what actually is going on. Yeah. So that's going to do it, I think, for our new mutants. I'm sure you could go on for another couple of hours. But, uh... Uh, you know, some some quick, if you're looking for some great reads, uh, if you're looking for Ileana, like I said, first appearance, giant size X-Men number one, might not be able to afford that. And it's not really an Ileana story. Um, one of the big ones, Uncanny X-Men 160, that is when she falls into the Limbo Portal. The Magic miniseries, now there's two of them. There's one that's actually not about Ileana and has a second. The one that's just Magic, and it is, like you can tell, it's an 80s cover. Um, that miniseries, Fortune miniseries, is the, the best Magic backstory that they haven't really changed. Like, they've changed a few aspects of it, but that that... That is her her origin backstory. Good stuff. Um, she joins the New Mutants with issue number 14. Like I said, she's not one of the original New Mutants. 
And then uh, 71 through 73 is Inferno when she goes back to being a little kid. And if you want to read one of the saddest X-Men stories, issue 303, she actually passes away. Good stuff. Um, and then if you want to read some of Danny going crazy, um, 18 to 20 is our Demon Bear Saga. Uh, great St. Kevin's art. Um, her special edition is when she is, becomes a Valkyrie, which is, is cool. Um, and it's is, is the New Mutants in NASCAR. That's some really fun stuff. Um, and then New Mutants annual number four is when she's exposed to the high Valkyrie, getting her, her upgrade in powers. Um, so that when she actually manifests illusions, they're, they're a physical manifestation, but she can't turn it off. So she actually has to keep something physically manifested at all times, which is usually a necklace. Uh, and for those looking to read the first New Mutant story, there is a New Mutants number one from March 1983, but that is the second story. You want to read New the Marvel graphic novel number four, the New Mutants by Claremont and Bob McLeod. If you read New Mutants number one, like I did the first time, you're like, I'm lost. Where is the rest of the story? And all of our characters besides uh, Ileana um, get their first appearance in Marvel graphic novel number four. So yeah, some good readings. And New yeah. Mutants just in general, great stuff. Like I said, Chris Claremont, the, the, you, 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 if you know of an X-Men story, it's probably a Claremont story. And Louise Simonson, she is, she's one of, you know, Wheezy is one of the, the greatest female comic creators, uh, in my opinion. So yeah, go, go check out some new mutants. Well, there you go. You got plenty of reading to do. Uh, we're going to take a break here really quick. We'll be right back. We're going to have our top fives of the week. Okay, for our top fives this week, we decided not to go with just comic book movies. We're going to make it a little bit thematically relevant to the content of the movies we've discussed today. And our top fives are going to be top five Beast Within movies, which there's a little bit of wiggle room for interpretation, as you will see when we get to my top five. So I'm going to go ahead and start us off, if that's okay with you. Go ahead. Okay, uh, my first Beast Within movie is Ginger Snaps. And of oh, course you, okay. you've got to have a werewolf movie on your list. And <laughs> I, could <Yep. laughs> have, I could have made this all werewolf movies, of course. That, that's very that, that was tempting, right? Yeah. But I, I decided like I'm putting one on there and only one. I'm gonna go with Ginger Snaps. I think maybe my favorite werewolf movie. I the sequel actually fits this theme even better, but the first one I think is a little bit better movie. The second one's good. The third one is fine. Yeah. Well, if we're going with our werewolf movies of the list, since, you know, I, I chose one also, um, I'm going with American Werewolf in London uh, with David Naughton. Mostly, uh, like, I mean, it's a classic werewolf movie, uh, but the, the, the notable thing for me is always uh, Rick Baker's special effects. They, yeah, they stand the test of time. Those are really great. Yeah, I know, I know the, the director Landis had a lot of say in that and, and, and Baker was bringing his image to, to, to life, but Rick Baker, which most people will probably actually be more familiar with his work on, uh, the thriller, um, music video. He truly brought out that beast within the, the original, a werewolf in London 
uh, werewolf transformation. You know, like I think that is the basis for all werewolf transformations. Like the the bone cracking, like slow. It it's painful. It's not a smooth. You know, I'm a furry. It's not Teen Wolf. <laughs> no, no, that that is a very painful, painful looking transformation done in bright light usually they hide it like i was saying earlier you just like you you see somebody I, they do this in dog soldiers where somebody falls behind a couch and when they stand up they're a <laughs> yeah. werewolf okay so my next one i am going to have one comic book movie on this list i'm going with hellboy and you can make it any oh. of the hellboys but I, i'm thinking of the first del toro movie because he he is certainly coming to grips and wrestling with the demon oh and yeah Rob human Perlman. aspects yeah, of him where, Ron Perlman did a good job in that. Ron Perlman is great in that movie. Yeah, he is terrific. And I did not like the new Hellboy. I liked parts of it. I, I thought the rest of it was a mess. I did not like David Harbour. I thought the movie oh. really missed having Ron Perlman in it. Because, uh, I mean, I don't know. There was just and, a and lot Hellboy's of... goofy. Like, Ron Perlman did the goofy side. Like there's a lot of Easter eggs, like the whole pancakes thing and, and loving cats, you know, that's, that's very uh, in line with the Mignola work. Yeah. And the, the version in that David Harbour plays, he's not goofy. I mean, he's, he's kind of a buffoon, but he's, he's not as much fun. And especially I did not like Ian McShane as Trevor Broom, the, his father figure. I thought he, did not fit that character very well at all. He just played him as an Ian McShane character. Like he, he yeah. could have been in Deadwood. <laughs> well, if we're choosing the superhero movies for this list that we weren't choosing superhero movies for, I'm going with the uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. You know, I've never seen that movie. I love that comic book, but I've never watched the movie. There is a huge deviation from the comics. I, I will be honest right off the bat and say that. And I know that League gets a lot of bad rap, um, but I enjoyed the crap out of it. Like, first, the the Dr. Jekyll transformation in it is so great. Like, it is the best Hulk transformation around. I say Hulk transformation because Dr. Jekyll in this movie is huge. He's, he's the size Hulk should be. They do great graphics on him. Um, I know it's like Sean Connery's last movie. I They'll think Sean Connery did an amazing job in it as Alan Quartermain. It has, you know, if you're a fan of classic novels like Alan Quartermain, you know, it's, it's great seeing, seeing Quartermain in a movie again. But yeah, it's, it's a big deviation from the comics. It, it got some bad raps, but I, I really enjoyed it. And, and you, you have your, your Dr. Jekyll with fighting the beast with them. And, and uh, I, I can't think of uh, Helsing's wife name right now oh, mina mina harker nina yeah nina harker um you know she's fighting her own beast within you know the, 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 if you don't know league of extraordinary gentlemen they they basically have a bunch of your universal monster style monsters you know your, your invisible man vampires uh dr jekyll and, and I... see, uh nemo nemo's ship is really cool his his car is really like pimp looking in it yeah, it's, it's a good movie. I, I I recommend watching it. So part of what kept me away is I love the comics so much. Uh, yeah, do not go and expecting that at all. No, I'm an, <laughs> I'm an Alan Moore fan, though I don't share his his uh, views on many things. I think he's great 
at writing comics. I think, I think Alan Moore is a great writer. I still follow him, his comics work, even though he does less and less of it every year. The first two story arcs in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen are some of my favorite comics ever. And then after that, like there's high points, but he starts to kind of like really get stuck inside of himself and it, it gets to be a little bit, a little bit much like he's just trying to be clever and show off and it's not as fun. But the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is such a cool comic that I just I had no interest in seeing the movie, especially like it, it looked kind of cheap to me in the trailers. But you it, know, it's you're a saying, fun superhero movie. OK, in my, my opinion. If, yeah. if you're saying that I will go into it, I will try to look at it through that lens. I will maybe by the next time we record, whenever that is, I will have seen I will have seen League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and read The Great Gatsby. <laughs> All right, so my next one, I'm starting to get a little bit off brand here, maybe, but my next movie is The Fly, which I chose partly okay. because of how many similarities it has to The Hulk or Ang Lee's version of Hulk. You know, the, the scientist who goes too far, the scientific accident that leads to uh, some mutation in DNA, especially the part where in Hulk where he comes out of it and he's like, I feel better than I've ever been felt before. You know, my bad leg, that's my good leg. Now that's very much like Seth Brundle in the fly where he feels better than he's ever felt before. He's like in top physical shape before he starts. Okay. I guess that answers which fly you're talking about. Oh, sorry. Yeah. David Cronenberg's the fly. So, uh, it, it, the beast within it's kind of a cheat because technically it's a fly that comes out, but it, then that fly is in him. So the fly is, you know, outside, but then <laughs> it's that David Cronenberg body horror where it's your body is turning against you from the inside. Yeah. And it, it definitely hits the uneasiness of Cronenberg uh, yeah. more than our, our last movie existence. Yes. Yeah. I keep bringing up Cronenberg. Yeah. So the fly, that's mine. What, what do you got? Uh, my next one, a little little off, but still a, a type of beast within um, Fight Club. Yeah, I thought of that too. I was like, oh yeah, because you, well, redacted Tyler Durden. <laughs> I'm not actually going to believe that. If people don't know yeah. the ending of Fight Club now, 21 years later, uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, spoilers. There's there's something crazy happening in Fight Club, and actually that's something I remember watching about the movie, uh, um, the car crash scene. I remember when my first watched on it, bugged the crap out of me. I was like, they just got out of the wrong side of the car. My dad was like, what? I was like, I rewind it, rewind it. You know, we're, we're, we're the type to do that. We watched it on VHS and rewind it. He's like, huh? Like, yeah, yeah. He uh, he was driving, but Edward Norton just got out of the driver's side. They yeah, I <laughs> I have to admit I missed that on my first viewing, but they I you know, I used to watch DVD commentaries all the time when I had more time. And that's something that David Fincher brings up that when they were editing the movie, the editor called him up and was like, "Oh, you you're going to have to reshoot this. You screwed this up." And he's like, "What are you talking about? Well, they get out of the wrong side of the car." And David Fincher had to tell him, "Well, we'll just watch the rest of the movie." <laughs> so my next pick I feel like it needs a little defense, but I also feel like anybody that knows this movie is going to know exactly what I mean when I mention it. I'm going with teeth. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Did you, you you've seen uh, it? Yeah, let's not even explain that movie. <laughs> ha, ha, have you seen, have you seen teeth? 
there the question is is that a real because they have a name for it right it is not it is not a real thing oh god that is <laughs> so we're, i'm gonna have to explain it it's <laughs> okay <laughs> it's a 2007 movie it is about a girl who has they call it vagina dentata in the movie it, she has a mouth or not a mouth but she has yes, she's, yeah. in her vagina like and a, and, and a jaw i guess it's a movie that sounds really trashy but is actually it's a lot of fun it's it maybe it's it's hard to explain but it is yeah it is it's a lot of fun it is very it's got a very um i don't know i i don't want to claim anything as feminist but it it has a nice kind of like personal growth and uh personal awareness bent to the story um it is very empowering for the main character I don't know how to follow that one up, so I'll just go with uh, Dr. <laughs> Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Going with, I think it was uh, 1990, Sir Michael Caine. Whoa, I've never seen this version. Oh, uh, I mean, yeah, it's 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 really well done. Very, very true to, was it the further cases of, there's, there's the actual title of the book is something like, misadventures were the further cases of dr jekyll and mr hyde but yeah the i want to say it's 1990 we're right around 1990 you know younger looking michael kane does both jekyll and hyde um the transformation of hyde like you you see him start off as a frail weak being but as as he keeps you know becoming hyde grow stronger it's it's a very very good adaptation it's not you know taking the story of Dr. Jekyll. It's, it's almost like a literal adaptation of the original novelization. Oh, well, I will. I'll have to check it out. Um, it looks like it's a, yeah, TV movie. Wait, is it a TV movie? 1990. Oh yeah. TV movie from 1990. Um, I will definitely have to check that out. I'm going to see if it's available anywhere. It's hard to go wrong with Michael Caine. He doesn't get knighted because you know, he sucks at acting. <laughs> okay. So my final pick, I, I mean, if you know me, this is not going to be a surprise. My final pick is Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> Which, if you've seen that, you know The Beast Within. It, the theme, it's Bob, it's Leland. Uh, it's definitely, you know, there is a force inside of him that he is trying to control or overcome throughout that movie. Well, I, I got a question. I know you're a huge fan of Twin Peaks. You've been to the town and all that. Um, how disappointed are you with their uh, restaurant chain? Wait, wait, with Tweeds, right? No, no, Twin Peaks. Have you not oh, heard of the restaurant? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know that they were a thing. A couple of years ago, I went to, I went to a Vegas for my uh, cousin's. Yeah, wife. that's where I first saw it too. And yeah. I saw Twin Peaks, and I was like, "What is that?" And then I looked inside, and I'm like, "Oh, it's it's Hooters, basically." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I, I I was with some buddies. Um, I think I was on a business trip, and and I was like Twin Peaks. Oh, I want to check that out. And my my coworker was like, Yeah, okay, sure, that sounds great. And I stepped in, I turned right around. I was like, It's not what I was expecting. Yeah, I thought you were talking I thought you were talking about Tweeds, which is the restaurant that the Double R was filmed at. I was actually just there last year. We went and had breakfast there. Um, we went up to 
uh, a cousin of Amber's was getting married and we drove up in Washington and we um, spent a day in and around the areas of Twin Peaks and we had breakfast there at that diner. So it, I hadn't been there for like 20 years. It was, well, no, almost 20 years. It was fun. But they're, they're having trouble now, of course, with COVID. They, they had a, a GoFundMe started recently because they're in danger yeah. of being shut down. So maybe, I mean, I, whatever. People have, it's tough for everybody all over, but maybe I'll put up a link to the, the fundraiser uh, once this episode goes up. They've been there for a long time. Obvi- obviously, they were there when they started filming in 1989. So um, it, it's a good place. It's a little diner. It's really cool because when I went there the last time, the last time I was there was in 2000 and the restaurant looked nothing like it does on the show because the the exteriors and the pilot episode were shot in Washington, but everything else was filmed in LA on sets. So the actual restaurant didn't look exactly like it did in the show, but sometime in the last 15 years or so, they remodeled the place and now inside looks like it looks on Twin Peaks. So it's, it's oh, pretty cool. Oh, that's actually smart. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty cool. And there's a big Twin Peaks mural. Maybe I'll post some pictures from this trip. I, I have like, yeah, I love Twin Peaks. It, it, it is, if I have any obsessions, Twin Peaks is definitely the top one. I have multiple shrines to Twin Peaks with memorabilia and stuff around my apartment. <laughs> and this last trip, I definitely picked up a lot more. <laughs> I know you were so giddy when the uh, new Twin Peaks came out. Oh my gosh. Yes. I so excited, like racing home every Sunday, like getting <laughs> donuts and buying food like at in and out or something. So I didn't have to make food. I could just go home and watch it. Uh, that's going to be it from us. I think. Wait, uh, well, no. I got my last movie. I'm sorry, Jared, what's your <laughs> last movie? <laughs> uh last uh, i guess is more of a reverse on what the theme is instead of the beast within uh, i'm going with the beast without on this and you know the the kind gentle soul within i'm going with the 1976 king kong okay that's a movie i've only ever seen in pieces oh man yeah that's that's the one where like you know i say it's the reverse because the ending to that film uh, like like you, you feel for that monkey, man. I feel like, for that monkey in in both versions of King Kong that I've seen. Yeah, I I, I guess, but I don't know the the seventy six one. It, it is probably you know just a bit of the nostalgia for me as I, I think it was probably the first Kong movie I saw. Um, I, but I remember like his. When, when he sets her down and that, that whole scene, you know, the emotion that they're able to show in his face, it was great. And, and again, it's not the beast, but then it's, it's the exact opposite of, hey, this beast really isn't that much of a beast. What is yeah. the beast within is the question. I might, I might have to call, I might have to call you out on this one because I'm actually not quite sure how it fits at all, other than it's got a... <laughs> you might as well have just ah! chosen like X-Men Days of Future Past because it has a beast in it. Yeah, I could. <laughs> I'm I'm just giving you crap. I'm giving you crap. Yeah, it's, like I said, this, this the, I I didn't know that. Like this 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 is a category where like I thought it was great. Like I'm pretty sure I suggested the idea of the beast within your like comic book movies. I was like, we could do that, but that's what people would think. Let's go with the beast within. And then like when it came to choosing these movies, it's like, oh, uh, hmm. It took me a little while to think of mine as well. 
Yeah, I was I was iffy with having both Doctor Jekyll and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because like there is a Doctor Jekyll and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but I, I feel that that's enough of a difference that I put with anyways. I have to I have to thank Amber for giving me the idea for Ginger Snaps and Hellboy because I was just thinking at one point like God I could just do all werewolf movies. So I think that gonna that's gonna bring us to the end of another episode. Uh, Jared, thank you very much for coming back. It's always a pleasure. I can't tell you exactly when this episode is coming out, but it will probably be post holidays. Uh, so I hope you had a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but like getting getting to talk comics is always a blast. Oh yeah, you know that's that's one thing I knew. I knew I would just be able to like let you go on this one. Um, <laughs> Anything that you want to mention here at the end? Uh, any last last words? Uh, you know, I'm going to throw out one more comic. If you're looking for the best Valentine's Day comic read, there is a Marvel Valentine's Day special from 1997 that has one of the sweetest stories with uh, Crusher Krill, the Absorbing Man, and Titania. Check it out if you need a good Valentine's comic read. <laughs> so... As always, we are uh, we have an affiliate program with Metallic Dice Games, where Jared, you work. Uh, they are, have been kind enough to offer a code. Uh, the code is two heads, T W O H E A D S. If you go to metallicdicegames.com for any dice or dice related needs, enter that code in, and you get ten percent off your order. And uh, those pins, the enamel pins, um, are those limited, or are they going to be around for a while? Uh, I, I do believe they're going to be around for a while. Um, okay. Hopefully we will start to get more, but I will. I don't expect to honestly see more until conventions get started. We, we yeah. really created the pins as a convention thing. Lapel pins are huge at conventions. Okay. Um, so we, we expect them to move a lot better there. Um, once, once the world is back to a reasonable, you know, living condition uh actually there's 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 talks one convention is talking about trying to get it going uh omega con down in florida so florida oh, yeah. yeah you know they're they're always trying to get stuff going yeah. um but there there's talks of a convention starting in march so that's currently what we're we're gauging to see you know if, if things well, do get rolling again um i know it, it's tough you're a business and everything but be state be safe be smart about that oh yeah no i've, I've looked at uh some really crazy contraptions as far as uh mask i i found on etsy there is a guy that is basically walking around with a fishbowl on your head yeah <laughs> with like built-in like fans and everything is like oh that looks really awesome. Like I wouldn't wear that in public on a normal basis, but at, at a convention, convention, yeah, I was like that. Like I, I'm going to make a spacesuit with that because it, it totally looks, you know, like a like a a, a retro '70s spacesuit uh, helmet, or or make a Mysterio costume. It'd be perfect for Mysterio. Yeah, so there's a lot of great stuff over at Metallic Dice Games. I'd like to draw attention to, and I like last time I will probably put more photos up online. Uh, Amber, my partner, created recently some very cool enamel pins, and those are up for sale on there. And like I said, you get that discount code if you enter two heads at checkout. Yeah, uh, I've got that awesome beholder with the die eyes. That 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 one's really we're, cool. We're really looking forward to. We've seen all the pictures. We're really looking forward to seeing our copies in the mail so we can we can look at them. Yeah, do that, look awesome. I, I know that went out Monday, so you guys. Shouldn't have a package here real soon. I, I may have thrown in a few extra goodies for you guys too. Oh wow! 
Uh, um, yeah, so. I'm excited. I mean, I'm biased because of course, Amber made them, but I think they all look pretty cool. If you're enjoying the show, please consider going over to wherever you're getting the show at and rate reviewing and subscribing. It does help out, uh, spread the word. Uh, we're happy you enjoy it. If you know somebody else that might like it, maybe let us know about it too. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. That's at two headed pod. And, uh, if you still have Facebook, there is a Facebook page for the podcast. Just, you know how to look it up. You'll find the incredible two headed podcast there. That'll be it for us this week. Hope you all had a good holiday season. We will see you again next week with a brand new host body.